Hi, this is Steve. If you wanted to scientifically determine the earliest signs of a burgeoning cinephile, you could do a lot worse than looking for the obsessive rewatching of favorite films. Now, maybe it was just that back in the 80s, we didn't have the unlimited access to movies we have today, but there were a few films that my friends and I watched over and over and over and over again. And we've already talked about a few of them on this podcast. Movies like The Terminator, Jaws, Airplane, and of course, Big Trouble in Little China seem to find their way back on my television all the time. But the film I most associate with my good friend, animator Stephen B. Jones, was the movie that set the tone for post-apocalyptic futures, brought car chases and action sequences to a whole new level, and fully established Mel Gibson as a true movie star. That film, of course, is George Miller's groundbreaking 1981 classic, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. And we couldn't possibly think of discussing it on the cinephiles without bringing Steve Jones back as a guest. So, if you haven't seen Road Warrior, hit the nitro injector, put the pedal to the metal, and drive over to cinephiles.net where you can stream the film from Amazon Prime. Then come back on Friday where we'll be joined by my old friend, storyboard artist, and character designer, Stephen B. Jones, for Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Hello, Cinephiles. Before we get going, I just want to let you know that we're coming very close to our 150th episode, where we're going to be doing a Q&A. If you have questions for John or I on any topic, but particularly movies, send it to thecinephiles1941 at gmail.com. That's thecinephiles1941, the year of Citizen Kane, at gmail.com. And now on with the show. Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, host, writer, producer over at Collider Video, and the co-host of the Top Ten and the Geek Buddy Show. Geek Buddies, hey! hey! Acting the fool every, acting fools every week. Come join us. Bring our numbers up for God's sakes. Come listen to us. But that's not what we're here for. No, what we're here for, first of all, is to introduce our very special guest, one of my oldest and dearest friends, Steve Jones. Uh, welcome back to The Cinephile. Steve is an animation uh, storyboard artist, a character designer on so many important shows in animation from, yeah. from Batman to Ghostbusters to uh, King of the Hill. There's so many I could list. Teen Titans Go, Scooby-Doo. Um, let's see. The list goes on. There's G.I. Joe. There's... What, and, and you're currently working. Can you share the one you're currently working on? I think I can say Ooh. I'm working on Big Mouth. Oh, the Netflix one. Mm -hmm. uh, Nick Kroll. Yes. Right? That's he's awesome. the boss. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, well, Steve, thank you so much for coming back to the Cinephile. Thank you guys for having me. Your other Cinephiles episode has been among the number one episodes ever on YouTube, which was Three Days of the Condor. Can you believe it? I, I mean, I don't want to say it's because of me. I would like to say it's because of Three Days of the Condor. But Why? Same Why wouldn't you want to say it's you? If you look at the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose we could test this out by doing Three Days of the Condor again with another guest. Oh. That's true. Or you could just keep having me on the show. And if it turns out that your numbers just keep going up and up and up, you've really got to look at what's happening. That's a fair point. I mean, there might be just a hidden Sidney Pollock 
fan base out there that we never knew about. Well, well Steve Jones fan base that we never knew about. I like I like where John's head's at <laughs> in this. But yeah, well, I think when you do, if you do Tootsie, that will be a good indicator. We have we done Tootsie? We, did we have tootsie. not. We've, we've had re- we've had requests for Tootsie. We have. Yeah, I've seen that. I saw it again the other day. That movie is so damn good. It's so goddamn good. It really is. But this is not the Tootsie podcast. <laughs> Instead, I would say we are going came out almost the same as, year though. Is it the same year? Well, I think Tootsie came out in 82. Road Warrior came out in 81, but it was released in America in 82. Right. Mm. Good call. Well, and that is, you have hit on what the title of our film is, which is Mad Max 2 Road Warrior. Mm. Steve, can you remember how you first came to this film? Uh, I believe that I, I, I think like a lot of early 80s films that were R-rated, I think I came upon it on HBO or Cinemax. Because I wasn't old enough to see it, I remember seeing like the ads for it, and I remember seeing like the stain, like the cardboard stands at the movie theater mm-hmm. for well, it, yeah. and being fascinated by it. And I, and I remember, you know, two days ago, oh, I saw a vehicle get that a hole that tanker, you know, whatever. Like that was the w- because that's one of the few lines Mel Gibson has in the entire film. That was the one line that's in the trailer and in the TV oh, yeah, commercials yeah. and stuff. But so, but I don't think I actually saw it until it was on. HBO and then I recorded it onto a VHS tape and I had it it was one of my only VHS tapes and it, I had Ender the Dragon, the Road Warrior <laughs> and the Terminator on the same tape and I watched them probably more than any other film. Wow. Um for me, I don't know how I got into the theater, but I know I saw it at the theater at the Rafael Theater in San Rafael <sighs> sitting in the balcony. But I was, you know, 13 years old, so I must have had a grown-up with me, but I don't know who took me. But I have such a distinct memory of going to see that movie and having just a, I don't know how you quite describe that experience for a geeky, nerdy, this is like all the stuff that I really wanted to see in a movie that had never existed before. You, well, and you never snuck into any R-rated movies? Not that we advocate that. No, um, I don't for any under underage cinephiles it, fans I, out there. It, it's certainly possible that I did, um, but this was like the Rafael was like one. It's not a multiplex or anything, so I couldn't have bought a ticket. Oh, wow. to anything else. It was mm. that was just the theater. John, do you remember how you first came to it? I think in very similar ways to Steve. I think we recorded it off uh, NBC or whatever. Oh, wow. I remember that, and then we so we watched it cut for the first time, and I had watched it over and over and over again. Um, I had not seen Mad Max, so this was my like most no, neither, of, like I. most of America. Yeah, most of America. I hadn't seen Mad Max, so it wasn't until it became uh, I could rent it from the video world or the video store at, by my in Virginia that I would could see the uncut version, right? And which is which isn't that much different. There's not a lot of cussing. There's some nudity, but it's more about the violence, right? right. And so, but I remember just falling in love with this movie and I would watch it over and over and over again. I remember I became a, a big uh, Bruce Spence fan mm-hmm. because I've, sure. I've always wanted captain. to run, run into him somewhere and just talk to him or interview him. That would be awesome. And, and I remember this is like the bat. This is the Mel Gibson before Lethal Weapon for me. Like I oh, yeah. knew yeah. this before Lethal Weapon, but I'd fall in love with this movie over and over and over again. And Hawk and you, you can run, but you can't hide. Or, um, I always use the line from the, in the film when he's like, you want to get out of here? You talk to me. <laughs> like that kind of stuff. It was such an eminently quotable film. Oh, yeah. And Lord Humongous, just, that's just such a crazy fuck, 
fucking person to have in your life as a young teenager that I, it shook me and I love the movie <laughs> yeah. and it made me come back to it over and it's over. It's funny over. that it's so quotable considering that there's not very much dialogue in the film. But what is in there is, is, is priceless. Yeah. yeah, George Miller and Terry Hayes are geniuses, mm-hmm. particularly George Miller. Um, the And one other thing I should say is that one of the reasons we're doing this today is it's a pick from one of our, our patrons on Patreon, Wayne Edwards. Uh, suggested Well, well we done, could, Wayne. Yeah, good job. One of the things that, that you mentioned as you were talking how you came to it is that this is one of the weirdest movie origins in history, which is that this is a sequel, but the way it was released in the U.S. was as its first film. Yeah. And so I really didn't even know that there was an original Mad Max until years later. I remember watching the Mad Max for the first time in the apartment that I shared with Jeff in Walnut Creek, which is where uh, one of our mutual friends. And uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, years later. Like college age? Yeah. Like I was, I was, seven, I was 18 probably. Okay. 18 or 19 when, okay. when I finally saw Mad Max because th- this was just but I'd seen Road Warrior which right. is, we weren't didn't call it Mad Max 2 at the time no because Warner Brothers released it as its own movie yeah because I, I saw Mad Max I think right around when I met Jeff because he had seen it so like in high school but it was much harder to get a hold of and I only saw the dubbed version mm. because I don't even know if you could see it with the Australian, I don't think so. I only uh, saw until the dub DV, version until DVD, right, right. Maybe on Laserdisc, but I never could afford Laserdisc. So when I um, found out that it was a dubbed version, I was super pissed. Yeah, <laughs> because like that's what you grow up remembering. Yeah, and then you watch the dub version, you're like, oh my god, yeah, this is completely different. Yeah, um, and a couple of things about Mad Max, just because I found it interesting. It's obviously a very low budget film, three hundred, three hundred something thousand at that time. Wow. George, it was George Miller's first film, yeah. and um, when they finished uh, shooting it, they had six weeks of editing, and they ran out of money. And the producer said, well, I guess we got to release what we have, and George Miller said no. Um, and he kept editing the film on the cheapest possible editing equipment in his house for almost a year. In his kitchen. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> and what he says, which I love, is this is where he learned filmmaking. Like, yeah. this was film school. Um, cause he's, yeah. Cause he said, basically he was constantly being forced to m- be made aware of what they had mm-hmm. and ha- what, how they could make the most of it and what he didn't have and what he wished that they had, you know, as they tried to assemble that cut. You know? And it, it's so funny cause this is, uh, it's such an important thing that I tell all my students in film school and why all of my directing students are required to edit their own films because editing is the teacher Yeah, because you're in the editing room and it's just what you said. You go, Oh, I needed a close up here. Oh, I don't have this storytelling right. Oh, these things don't fit together the way I thought they did. So the next time you go to shoot, you know more and more of the things you need. Mm. If you don't actually edit your own films, you never learn these and, lessons. And it's why, I mean, I, Mad Max is a great film, full stop, but it's why The Road Warrior is just light years a, ahead of oh, it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so much better. In the midst of this process, he goes to Peter Weir, obviously, you know, probably the most successful Australian filmmaker of the time, and he comes to him and he says... I don't think I can make movies. This is just too hard. You know, and the description I like was like, it's like you go out to walk a dog that's like a huge dog and that dog just drags you around and beats <laughs> you up down the street. And Peter Weir's response was, um, it's always this hard. And his description was, it, it's like you're part of a platoon in a jungle and you got your men and you got your mission, and but you don't know where the landmines are and you don't know where the snipers are and a whole bunch of unexpected things are happening and whatever happens, you have to be f- flexible and finish the mission. 
and it's it's the willingness to embrace unpredictability is what filmmaking is. Mm. That is such a great way of looking at making movies. Yeah, and thank goodness those guys had that talk. And to me, it's not a surprise of like, I think with Australia, and this is probably true of New Zealand too, or Canada, you know, of like cu- countries that are a little bit smaller, there's a little bit more of a collaborative sense, mm. you know, that because if you think about it too, George cast Mel, you know, but then Peter followed up and cast him in the next two movies, you know, his next two movies. Oh, right. He's in Gallipoli and The Year of Living Dangerously, right, right. which came out, I think, the same year as Road Warrior also. And Gallipoli is the first time I had seen Mel, because I saw that in the theater with my parents. Yep. And that was one it's of amazing the film. stunning. I remember getting the end of the, that movie. I think I might have said that when we talked about, maybe it came up before on the show, but we got to the end of the movie and the credits are rolling and the audience just sat there in silence. And nobody moved. Nobody got up. Credits ended, lights got up, and slowly people in the theater got up and walked out. I never had that experience before. Wow. Um, well, and it's, it, I think that's, you know, just a quickly tangential on this. John is talking about visiting New Zealand with his girlfriend is that there's an exhibit in Wellington at the Te Papa Museum about Gallipoli. And the Peter Jackson and Weta, they did these giant oversized, uh, like, statues of all these soldiers and people that were in Gallipoli. And I think, you know, Gallipoli totally changed uh, Australia and New Zealand's like whole approach to war, I think, in in a very profound way. And I think those countries have been a lot less inclined to just like jump into armed conflict because of the scars from Gallipoli, you know, so just a, I don't know if you guys ever do, you know, some Peter Weir I don't know. Have you guys done? Peter we haven't Weir done yet? a single Peter Weir. No. Um, and definitely there's so many good choices. Yeah, Gallipoli, Witness, and of course there's Master and Commander, which isn't my favorite Peter Weir, but those That's books great. are so important. And I, I love your Living Dangerously. I haven't seen it in forever. That might have been. I might have seen that before Gallipoli, and I remember. You know, I think that I think I did a report on Indonesia in high school because of Year of Living Dangerously, oh. mm. and because I was a Road Warrior fan, Mel Gibson fan, right. and then I'm like, then I watched a movie so I would facto. never have watched. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and Mad Max did get a release in the U.S. It didn't do terribly well, but it did have this sort of underground on-video following, which was enough to make Warner and drive-ins. Brothers. I think it did well in Texas and in the kind of drive-in culture. Really? Because, well, because well, and we'll get to this more. But Mad Max has all this amazing stuff going for it. But one of the places in its Venn diagram of where it got people is car fans, mm. because it's oh, you yeah. know. You know, like, and I that think that's sense. that's a George Miller quote. He's like, "Look, the U.S. You guys have your gun culture. For us, it's cars. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, I mean, if you you way, had way less deadly than the other. Yeah, you had Dan on for Conan, Dan Panosian on for Conan the Barbarian, and uh, like I asked Dan, I'm like, "Hey, wh- what's Mad Max drive?" He's like, "Oh, a '73 Ford Falcon." Like he knew, you know. Right. Like, so guys that love muscle cars, Mad Max is definitely the whole world. It's definitely a thing sure. for them. One of the interesting things, too, is that after the movie came out, what's the name of the writer again? It's Terry Terry Hayes. Terry Hayes. So George Miller and Terry Hayes are talking about why did this movie do well? And it was only after that they started to discover Joseph Campbell and these sort of heroic archetypes Mm -hmm. and the hero's journey. And they went, oh, this is why the thing we already made resonated with people. And that helped them in terms of coming up with the script and the ideas for Road Warrior. Right, because then they doubled down and read, you know, they started reading. I, I think they, I, I don't think they'd read Hero of a Thousand no. Faces until after Mad Max came out. And then, because they're like, wait, why is Mad Max so popular in Japan and in Italy and, you know, all around the world? Um, and now they plug that into this idea for Road Warrior. And they also was right at the end of the Arab oil embargo. And they come up with this idea. Because the other thing that's so strange to me is that. 
Mad Max, the post-apocalyptic world that's in Mad Max 2, that is not the world of Mad Max 1. They're connected, but it's not like the same. Well, no, I think, well, I'm, you know, post-apocalyptism, what that, I mean, help me with that word, please. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, seeing a post-apocalyptic world, the Road Warrior is really the first major, uh, depiction of that in film that we saw like the only other stuff that you could say is close uh, planet of the apes is a post-apocalyptic yes. you know thing right but it is still kind of a science fiction film because there's talking apes in it right. you know right. what I mean? and there's that really obscure movie from the 1970s called a boy and his dog was with just Don johnson that one yeah but again it has a telepathic speaking dog yeah. in it and stuff like and i think i road warrior really is the first time that we see it in film where it's it's not really science fiction. It's right. just because there's nothing, nothing happens in the Road Warrior or Mad Max that can't just happen in real life. It's essentially just a drama projected forward in time. Well, and know? it isn't about, it doesn't have uh, challenging themes the way that Planet of the Apes does. You know what I mean? Like you don't have deep thought. I don't, I think about Road Warrior so much. Well, I think it was, it definitely, <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's the beginning of, I think you know it's such an influential film in this particular way. Like it defined the look of you know post-apocalypse in a way that 100%. had never done since. I, like I was in a Shakespeare production in 1988, like th- six years after it came out of Titus Andronicus, where Ooh. the director and the production design based it on like well, what if it's you know because Titus Andronicus is supposed to be like as Rome is on its way down on its mm-hmm. decline, and so they're like what if it's all set in Road Warrior? So our whole costumes for that production was you know. Well, and to be frank, there's several <laughs> stories I've written in one way or another where really in the back of my mind, the world was Road Warrior. Yeah. You know, like yes. just the setting is so. And of course, my story might have gone a different direction, but that image of that world is so strong. Well, it's amazing that, you know, within a 12 month period, we have the Road Warrior and Blade Runner, like two of the most influential depictions of the future that we've probably, you know, seen on film. I mean, certainly in the 80s, you know, like, and they've still, everything that's come after them, it's hard, no one's had much luck getting away from either of them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's, so, so before we get into the movie, one more thought is that uh, I, when I sat down to watch this, you know, I take all sorts of notes and I try to write down as much of the film as I possibly can. And my thought when I sat down to do this one was, oh, good, there's not that much dialogue in this movie. It'll be easy. And it was the opposite because it, there's the action is so complicated. Is. And the other thing that was hard was I, most of the characters don't have names. Mm-hmm. So I have all these things where it's like guy jumps on the truck. Guy does, you know, this guy does this guy with, you know. But that, the funny know. thing, do you look in the credits? A, a ton of them have names, it but right. they just, no one ever, spe- you know, speaks but their name. I don't name. know who they are. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But um, it's like, you know, the mighty Wes, the golden youth, like. Actually, if you look at all four of the Mad Max films, George Miller really seems to get a big kick out of just coming up with interesting character names, yeah. you know, and they're yeah. great, you know. Um, the movie opens with that great music from Brian May, and we hear a little bit of the narration, which again is sort of classic within this genre of film. I remember a time of chaos, ruined dreams, this wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior, the man we called Max. And, and, and as a comic book fan and science fiction fan, it just fits in mm. with all the stuff that I was reading. And that push in 
on camera to that shot of Max is so cool. It's but before I mean because you bring up that really great point about not knowing it's a sequel is that in that voiceover when we're seeing the montage they do that brilliant thing where it's all found footage. It's all historical footage right. that that's yeah. that's from you know the 1970s and before. But then to have someone from the future talking about stuff that seems more or less current as the past, like does something to our head. It's all in black and white. And then the fact that they intercut it into the images from Mad Max One. So basically, in less than two minutes, they give us all the information that we need to know from Mad Max One to the point that you don't even know that. There's a movie that you've missed if yeah. you haven't seen it, you know? The thing I was thinking about is how many comic books did we all read where the first two pages told you the origin story or the or the history sure. or the flashback of the previous issue? In like two captions. In like two captions. Uh, and this was yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, hell, the opening crawl of New Hope gives you all this stuff. And you that's the first movie in, in that you've ever seen of Star Wars. <laughs> right. It gives right. You all yeah. this background stuff that you're not going to see for many years later. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the same... Kind you're of right, it's, thing. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's like a visual version of that of the Star Wars crawl in a way. Right. And then out of this sort of black and white flashbacky thing, we go into this image of the road just flying by, camera really low. And this is where I first learned that oh, the camera's low makes everything look fast. Yep. You know, because details go by. When I think I read, they needed to have it low too because of the lack of any other background detail mm. that if they didn't have the camera low to see the ground going by, you don't have, say if you're going by fa- like in the, in Endor and return of the Jedi, you got all these trees flying by. Mm. So it looks really fast. Like if you've got all, if you're in a city, you got all the buildings going by. If you're in the desert, if you don't got the road going by fast, then it doesn't look like anyone's going fast. Mm. You know? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and uh, then there's this great cut and there's Max, Uh, shot through the window driving and we see a whole bunch of crazy cars um and we see that he's got this very australian looking dog in the car uh which apparently was in the pound and about to be put down yeah they literally saved that dog's life to get it in to get it in the movie and we come up on some wreckage and the car swerves and the motorcycle jumps over it this action sequence right this is right from the beginning we see how good george miller is at shooting action Mm. I mean, the, the shot selection, the way the camera moves, it's so exciting. It's so fast-paced. And do we have any idea what's going on in this movie? None. We don't necessarily know, except in a way there's a little bit of a save the cat thing right away of like, all right, we don't know if, we don't know if the bad guys are the people chasing or the pursued. But what lets us know that probably the person being pursued is the good guy, he's got a dog. Yeah. And the dog looks yeah. friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and his little red flashing light comes off that he's low on fuel, turns off his supercharger, whatever that is. It is super cool. <laughs> um, cars start pulling up to him, and now for the first time we see Wes. The mighty Wes. The mighty Wes. Vernon Wells. He is awesome. And he was a theater actor, and apparently his personality is nothing like this. He's <laughs> soft-spoken, he's sweet, he's pretty nonviolent, and when he... When George Miller wants to hire him, he goes, I don't think I'm the right guy for this part. And he goes, no, no, you are. He goes, no, I don't think I'm going to be able to do what you want me to do. And he goes, well, just come in and we're going to do the makeup and the hair. Um, and trust me, it's going to be good. And they bring him in. And what's amazing to me is they let it, he let them shave his head and do the mohawk. Wow. And they put him in leather and they put him in the makeup and they did all the stuff. But what they didn't have was a full-length mirror in the room as all this is happening to him. So he hasn't actually seen himself. And he gets in all the stuff, and George Miller is in the office next door or wherever, and there is a full-length mirror in George Miller's office, and all of this is on purpose. He walks in, George Miller looks at him and goes, yep, turn around, points him to the mirror, 
uh, Vernon turns around, sees himself, and instantly becomes Wes. <laughs> like, as the moment he saw what he looked like, that character came to life. And his performance is amazing oh, in this yeah. movie. It's totally great. Yep. It is, it is stunning and... Nothing like, I mean, he steals, if you could steal a movie from Mel Gibson, he almost does. I would argue that he is the reason the movie works. Because you have to have a good, like, Humongous doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Wes loves getting his hands dirty about everything, and he's gay. Like, there's just so much yep. about this in 1982. It's a huge deal. The gold, I mean, massive. the golden youth, what I love about it, too, is there's no, they don't comment on it. Yeah. There's not even the slightest hint of like what are those two totally offensive uh, bad guys in Diamonds Are Forever? You know. Oh yeah. You mm-hmm. know, it's like they don't in any way imp- say anything negative about Wes or the youth. Right. When the youth is hurt, Wes is genuinely heartbroken. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and we're actually sad in a weird way too. Yeah, I think. it's true. And and then also, and it's not just like oh oh we're in prison and we have no other choices because in a little while. They let us see that there are women in the oh, yeah. bat in the bad guy group, and the women aren't just all prisoners either. Like there's that one moment where, you know, uh, there's a man and woman making love in the tent, and the woman's on top. Like it's clearly a consensual, yeah. you know. Um, so basically, Mighty Wes could have had who he wanted to yeah. have, and he he had the golden youth, which well, I think right for eighty one, eighty two. That's that's very progressive. It's incredible. Well, the whole I mean, stylistically, the whole movie is so daring, and George Miller obviously continues that throughout his entire career. Mm-hmm. Um, the echoes of Furiosa are there in Max's wife in the first, in Mad Max, and de- and with the warrior, warrior woman, woman yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, is such a strong female character. Mm-hmm. Like, she's basically like Furiosa, you know, part zero, you know, yeah. like she's the prelim to Furiosa. Yeah, I actually might put, we've had conversations on this show before about mm-hmm. who is the greatest villain. I think uh, the Mighty Wes might be among the top two or three greatest henchmen. Like yes, yeah, good like, call. Like yeah. right, odd job, odd job, the mighty Wes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he is such a scary. Uh, uh, Alexander Gudinov in uh, Die, Die Hard. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is an interest. This should be a top ten list. That might be not a bad idea for, <laughs> for us to do. Steve on the show. Um, so yeah. uh, this moment. Uh, Wes on on the motorcycle on one side and Guy on the other side are coming up, both on either side. And, of course, Max has turned his supercharger up, so they're catching up. And just as the moment they're about to catch him, he slams on the brake. They have crossbows they fire, and Wes gets hit in the arm. And the other truck rolls. Mm. Uh, Max skids to a stop and a great just sliding skid to a stop. Everything is just shot so cool. It's an interesting thing, though, what you say. It's an interesting story structure thing to establish, in a way, your bad guy first. Yeah. And to set him up as being a badass. Because, you know, Wes has that whole thing where he pulls the crossbow, mm-hmm. you know, out of himself. And basically, this is like, this is for us to see, this is a very formidable guy, you know. Um, and I, I fu- fucking love... The sound design in that moment, and this happens throughout the film, because the film is so subjective. 90% of the film, we only see what Max sees. Right, right. And so what's great is that when we first have that shot of Wes starting to pull out the the um, crossbow, crossbow bolt, bolt we're on, we're on uh, Max as he's starting to get the gas out, and we hear from exactly the sound level that Max would hear it being a hundred yards away, yep. this scream, but it's not that loud. And then when we cut in on Wes, then the sound goes up. Yeah. 
I don't know that I'd ever seen that in a film before, like mm. the subjective use of sound. Like usually in a film, if if we were on Max and he's 100 feet away, when we heard the scream, we would hear it at that same pitch volume. Right. You know, it's funny. I hadn't thought I hadn't put it all together. But you're totally right. And there's several subjective uses of sound that are amazing in the film um, that we'll get to. In this moment, Max jumps out of his car, runs over with some buckets and cans and bowls and to try World to War get... One uh, uh, army helmets. Yeah. You know, like literally anything that will hold liquid, you know. And this is great storytelling because what's he doing is he's trying to get the drips of gas out of the wrecked car. Um, and what do they call it, John? The gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> love it and just as he's finishing up we hear another scream and a hand comes out of that wreckage oh yeah and he opens up the door and dead body drops out and that dead body is carrying a little tiny music box a hurdy-gurdy I believe is the technical term and Max spins it and we hear the song first hint of only of the three smiles that in the film that we get a little tiny glimmer of smile at that first. It makes sense, doesn't it, though? Because it's reminding him of the old world of his childhood, of his child and his wife. Right. I mean, mm. like how they were killed by that gang. If you if you had if you see the first movie, this whole remembrance, because I'm sure there aren't many that right. he encounters in this post-apocalyptic world Well, because he's lost i mean you know he essentially loses his humanity in mad max yeah just becomes this he loses his wife and child becomes this engine of vengeance if you will and then this film is about him regaining his humanity which they actually that's like the last line that the grown-up that the narrator says you know in the beginning of the film they basically tell you you know it's about a guy getting his humanity back. They just say it right at the beginning of yeah. the film, you know, but you've been so bombarded by everything else, you don't even realize, like, oh, they just told us the whole ending. <laughs> his Mel's performance is so spare and so simple in a lot of ways. He says an interesting thing that I liked, which is he said that the key to being an action star is to always look scared, but then always try to be cool and don't say too much and don't do too much. Right. Fair. Well, cause, I mean, it's... This performance is amazing when you think about it. He's 23 or 24 mm-hmm. when they shot this film. They had to put the gray in. You know, luckily there's a lot of sun in Australia and New Zealand, so you you, you like he looks more weathered yeah, than probably weathered. most 23 or 24 year olds yeah. do, but it's just it's when you think about some of the 23-year-old actors that we could imagine now that are playing like teenagers to think that this guy holds down this whole movie, yeah. you know, it's definitely a component. Just his star quality is a component of why this film is such a big success. A hundred percent. And well, we see what happens after this. I mean, between yeah. this Gallipoli and you're living dangerously, that dude's a star. Yeah, yeah. he and he the, he pretty much rules the '80s in the Hollywood box. You know, in terms yeah. of the films he gets to do. Um, he sees this strange machine, which is the gyrocopter. Can I just say really quickly? I love the story is so lean that we finish the sequence with Wes and then the next time we just see Mel coming across the gyro captain. There's not like five minutes of him doing other right. shit or just right. driving around. We just go right to the next important story point. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets out of the car. He's got a, a crowbar and we see sort of a top-down shot and he walks up, very, which is a beautiful <laughs> top-down shot, by the way. He walks up really well, cautiously. What I super love about that top-down shot, and you almost you so rarely see him, and it's such a beautiful one, but there's all these really weird long trees in the setup mm. before, and mm. we never see the top of those trees. So somehow it doesn't seem that strange that we're seeing, because somehow we ima- I imagine that we're like 
we're in one of those trees looking down, mm-hmm. even though that's would be so it's you, a crane shot. But so you're saying the environment actually clues us to the cut to the top down shot. It feels like it to me. It never would have occurred to me. It, it's interesting because you're a storyboard artist that that's you know like the the moments at which you can, you are allowed to cut because top down shots tend to be very jarring when you cut to them because we essentially never see the world that, that way. That's the logic that allow. Well, what I also love about this top down shot, George Miller's story logic is so impeccable in all of the four films and in general like he's so strict in like the when he creates rules then everything's got to work that way whether if it's a talking pig and babe you know what i mean like then Mm -hmm. like whatever the rules are that he makes up and what i love about that shot is the geography of mad of road warrior and all the movie all of his movies but the road Warrior, it always makes so much sense like like this whole scene that we're about to go to it's like he never cheats on on where anyone is. It's like he just moves the camera where it's supposed to go, but but he never does he he never does any kind of like wait where were we? How does mm. that like you always know exactly where everyone is? And that top down show literally shows you the car is here, the helicopter is here, and I think along the lines with his weird sense of geography, there's a lot of shots of feet in yeah. this movie, like more than you usually see. And they, he uses them as such a storytelling thing, too. If it kind of keeps you grounded where you really know exactly where people are going. And sometimes you're just following people going someplace. I don't know. It's strange. Most people don't cut to feet a lot, you know. Fetish. <laughs> sure. Could be. Sorry. Uh, and he walks up cautiously because we soon discover that sitting in the gyrocopter is a snake. Mm-hmm. And what does Max do? Grabs it. Yeah. <laughs> and the moment he grabs it out of the earth rises the gyro captain uh, with a crossbow. Turn at the snake! Put it down! Gently. Played brilliantly yeah. by Bruce Spence. There's some great yeah. foot shots there because after he's starting to, when he wants to have kind of Bruce Spence yeah. coming around, we cut to his feet. And then we see this great foot acting that Bruce Spence is doing so this little with dance. The pink, with the pink shoes. Exactly. Yep. He's wearing Converse low tops. Um, <laughs> apparently, he had just gotten out of the hospital when he was shooting this huh. and was not well. Right. Um, and yet managed to jump. So here's a question, by the way. What was he doing? What's the plan here? Well, I guess I guess it's a... I mean, I guess he... A trap he, for what? To I guess to rob people of yep. their stuff, you know? Okay. You're in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah. Yes, yeah. You leave a snake in your gyrocopter. You bury yourself in the desert yeah. and wait. Well, it's like a, a weird plan, like a predator would do, right? I mean, I you guess, see this all I the guess. time. Yeah, they they. Yeah, it's kind of he's kind of like being like a, one of those spiders that buries itself in the sand. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, like it's better than being prey, which he would be flying around with that copter, which makes a lot of noise, right? And attracts attention he, or riding around on. He's it, hiding yeah. himself in the shade, basically, like. Yeah. And well, he's a skinny guy. He's not going to scare anybody out um, there. Uh, and he's surprised that Max was faster than Snake. Yeah. Must be. Reflexes. That's what you go. You know, reflexes. Um, <laughs> and now we find out what he's after, which is the gasoline. Exactly. The gasoline. <laughs> and as he wants him to go to it, what do we find out about the gasoline? Booby trapped. Booby trapped. Touch those tanks and... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know every single one of Mel's lines in this movie? Maybe. There's only 30-ish. Wow. <laughs> he doesn't um, have a lot. Some of them are rep- repetitive, like, where? You know, which, <laughs> actually, that's not a good... The R is soft in the Australian accent, but it's hard to imitate the word where if you're an American with our hard R's. 
Um, and Max leans down to go disarm the booby trap, but what's right next to the booby trap is a knife. Yep. Mm. And as he reaches for it, the gyro captain puts that crossbow right on his neck and says, A fella, a quick fella, might have a weapon under there. I'd have to pin his head to the panel. And so instead of pulling the knife, Max flips the switch, disarms the booby trap, starts to go for the door of the car. Nope, not going there because not going to fool me like that. So instead, Gyro Captain goes towards the door of the car. And what pops out of that door? Dog. Which I think I read or heard somewhere where that Bruce Spence and the dog actually got along really, really well. <laughs> so they had to do a thing where he just kind of tricked the dog into go for his scarf. And so, because it's just a quick shot where the dog is right. ostensibly going, but he's really just yeah. going for the scarf, you know. And as, as he's now in deep trouble, he lets out about that there's this place with gas as much as you want. <laughs> and Max is interested. Asks where. And he says, kill me and you'll never find it. Kill me and you never find out. Um, cut to them driving, which is a classic movie cut. We don't get to the end of that thought. We the, the end of that thought is completed by the fact that we're both in the car. We're driving, right. except <laughs> he's tied up. Yep. He's got a gun pointed on him with a little string on the trigger. The <laughs> string goes to a bone. The bone's in the dog's, dog's mouth. mouth. Well, that, I, that's what I love, too, is that this film is played totally seriously, but George Miller has a very, like, wry sense of humor. Oh, yeah. And wherever they can sneak in a little bit of humor, it's there, you know? Well, and it's also, Max is not a good person, you know? He's really not a nice person. (laughs) Like, he maybe ends up becoming a good person again, but... he's a former policeman. Yeah. So he's naturally skeptical and cautious. He lost his wife and child to this uh, uh, biker gang. Uh, So... For him, as you said, Steve, he lost his humanity in the last film. So for him, being a good person or bad person is irrelevant. Survival is what's relevant. Right. And whatever he needs to do to do that, he'll do, uh, including putting a bone in a dog's mouth that could blow the head off. And I love Bruce Spence's big eyes. His big eyes come in handy in these moments when he shows fear and total hesitation. Well, and when and the dog like, looks at yeah. funny. <laughs> well, <that's, yeah>, exactly. <laughs> I love that moment. Oh, oh. I love the fear in his eyes. Two other things about this. The first is, is that... What was the gyro captain's plan to do with him? Killed by a snake. Right. If he had not been killed by the snake, was after he got the gas, was the gyro guy going to let him live? Maybe not. I don't think so. Probably not. Other thing about this is what we find out later, that gun ain't loaded. Yep. So so he wasn't actually risking his life by doing the string and the bone in the dog's mouth. Right. Oh, Oh, that's a really good point. He's still a good person inherently. Yeah. The hero would do that, not load it. <laughs> um, and then we have a wipe, and we're walking, and we're on the feet again. You're right. Right. Um, it's a great way to set up. And they set up that whole, when they set up the whole uh, refinery and stuff, and they go up on that hill, again, the geography of all that works perfectly. You know, the, sh- the boots lead us up to the hill, to the vantage point, And then when, when we see it behind that hill, they make it make sense that that hill would hide everyone down there from being able, being able to see Max and the gyro captain. It's yeah. just like the geography is amazing. And the, this hill, this is out in the middle of nowhere. I forget the name of the of the Bro- Broken Hill is the town where they that's shot right. it. It's near Broken Hill, and um, this was an old uh, mining area that really no one had shot a lot of films there. A lot of people shoot films there now. Um, and he they're looking down, and what we see is this compound that's the refinery, and we also see a whole bunch of crazy bad guys around it. Yeah. 
and they're being fought off with flamethrowers and Max is watching this whole battle through binoculars. We see the humongous from far away mm-hmm. and then we see Wes and the Golden Youth talking to the humongous. So we go, oh, those guys, those extremely memorable Mohawk <laughs> guy with the butt cheeks and the blonde guy. I remember them. How could I forget? They're so well designed, you know. And since the gyro captain has brought him where he said he would bring him, he's like, hey, you know, man is man of his word. I kept mine and has his chains out. The arrangement was I wouldn't kill you. And uh, he ties him up to a tree. <laughs> that's low. And that's a <laughs> and that that shot after he falls asleep because it, it's in two three five, right? It's like yeah, it's two three five. All of George Miller's films, but particularly the Road Warrior, it is such an example of the rule of thirds uh, composition. Mm. Like every shot is so well composed. And particularly with its width and the rule of thirds, so often there are two things going on in the frame, you know, and usually someone's in the foreground and someone's in the background, but because of the lens he's using, they're both in focus, you know, and so when Max is just looking down and then when he starts to take out the dog food can, which is the next scene, like we see all, we can see the gyro captain and the dog in focus too. Like he's, it's almost like there's two things you know, he's telling the story left to right, you know. Well, one of the things he does is he uses, for those shots, there are lots of wide-angle lenses, which allows you to have everything in focus. And then in all of the binocular and the telescope mm-hmm. shots and all that stuff, it's super, super long lenses. The other thing is because it's a it's anamorphic, which means the to get that really wide image, you have to, the, the film stock is actually fairly square it's four by three and that to get that image you have to have a lens that squishes everything together Uh and then when you have it projected you have a lens that spreads stretches everything apart so if you ever have your tv and you have the setting wrong and you switch it to four by three or something and everyone looks tall and thin that's actually what's being recorded on that piece of film when you're shooting two three five anamorphic Uh um it's that's how they use up all that space the problem is that is a big huge heavy camera Hmm. particularly at that time and, and they didn't have a lot of dolly shots because laying out dolly on sand is hard because you've got to lay out track right. and you've got to balance the track so it's totally even. And, and sand is soft. And so you continually – so sometimes you have to put down uh, plywood and then you have to put down the track and then you have to balance out the track. It takes a long time. So they go, well, let's shoot handheld. Well, shooting handheld with a big, huge 235 Panavision camera is really, really hard. And yet that's what a lot of that is. So like the shots of them when the gyro captain comes out of the ground and they're kind of circling around them, that's all handheld. Well, that's – you bring a – so Dean Semler is the director of photography for this film. He – strong guy that he could manhandle these cameras and stuff and he's an asking he's an oscar winning cinematographer i think he did dance i think he won the oscar for dances with wolves but he's shot some amazing films dead calm is a great film that he shot that i really love and he did apocalypto with mel gibson that's right yeah which is also a great looking film yeah Yeah. and he came out of documentaries that's he had this is his first feature Mm. And, and the thing about it is like documentary filmmakers cinematographers they have to run and gun they have to be ready and they have to get the shot and not have all the prep time and so that really it sounds like george miller learned a lot from him george miller's partner who edited fury road is also comes from documentaries Mm. Um, i forget her name but and it's just when you think about the fact george miller coming from being you know a doctor and just like a real life person it's interesting that he's such a great filmmaker but he did not come up in a conventional filmmaking way at all you know he didn't he, he just studied film the way uh, just a fan of film would study. It's not like he didn't go to film school or, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, and as you said, we have this sequence where he Mel, Max eats some dog food out of this can, which probably wasn't dog food. <laughs> and then 
the I love the gyro captain pulls out his big spoon. It gives a nice little look, and does he get that can? No. Well, that that's I mean, so many scenes, and I think this happened with Mad Max, and only more with Road Warriors. So much of the film is just told through pure film storytelling convention. I think it's why it was such an international success, because you did not need to be able to speak English. And it didn't matter. They didn't need to redub The Road Warrior because there's not enough speaking about it. But what people are saying, if you listen to if you just if you watch the film silently, it still 100 percent makes sense. You know what I mean? Well, honestly, I was watching with Karen and at this point in the movie, she said this is pretty much a silent film, which it is. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of music. There is some dialogue, but it's mostly visual storytelling. Um, It's the next day, and the uh, compound opens up. I love that the gate is a bus. That's what I love, George Miller's logic in all four of the films, is everything is functional. You know, you couldn't just have something decorative that had to have a function. Like, you know, talking about Mel with a crowbar, like all the details on his costume, like the jury-rigged knee brace that he made because he hurt his knee in Mad Max Mm -hmm. and stuff, and that it squeaks, you know. And... He has like, he has wrenches literally attached to the, co- like, you know, his costume is essentially just a walking tool belt. He's like a utility belt, just walking. So he wouldn't have to reach or grab anything. It's just all right there, you know. Um, and the way they built it, normally when you build a compound like that, most of it would be fake, except for the things that are on the surface that you need to see. It would be a lot, it would be built out of light materials. That's not the case here. This is all real. It's all scrap metal. It's all, I mean, this is big, heavy built set. Right, yeah. Um, and three cars shoot out of that compound, head off in different directions, and Max wakes up. Um, and what does he see? He sees bad guys converging on the one of the cars. Yeah. The camera zooms in as we watch those uh, cars get chased down, and the camera is shaky on purpose. And this is one of the things that's really interesting, the way the film is shot. In fact, George Miller sometimes would go up to the camera operator and shake him a little more because it wasn't <laughs> shaky enough. Well, this is uh, this is such another great, great example of the subjectivity because A, when Max and, and uh, the gyro captain get up there and they're first seeing the compound, we're hearing the humongous and all these people yelling, but we're hearing it from a really far yep. distance. You know, even though we're screaming, we're yelling. It cracks me up to think that the, the actor playing the humongous had all this dialogue he had to learn that, you know, is like probably never really in the film. But then what Steve talked about with these close-ups, this is one of my, I mean, it's so brilliant. It's like, so Max has these binoculars so we're seeing everything through his binoculars to give us a certain close-up. But now, as storytellers, we need to go closer. So George, it's not, he, he's not, well, I, that breaks the logic of the film for us to just cut closer. What if I give the gyro captain a telescope? A ridiculously yeah. long and telescope. And the telescope yeah. is more powerful than the binocular, which now motivates why we can see it. And then we get to see one shot of the gyro captain looking through it. Yeah. And then... And then Max looks up and says, like, what the fuck? And then he just takes the telescope <laughs> so that now we as the audience can watch it yep. because we're not seeing the movie through Gyro Captain's point of view. We're seeing it through Max's point of view. And you get a little joke as they switch as he switches and takes the telescope. Right. And now we're in like an 800 millimeter lens, which is a super, super long lens. Um, and the cuts from the wide angle lens in the in the real footage to that long lens, it it exemplifies the the fact that we're really looking through the telescope and they the car is flipped and we've dragged some people out of the car and one guy gets killed and then there's this shot of this woman who is being attacked and the camera pushes in on the gyro captain as he's watching and he is smiling and he is smiling and the camera pushes closer and the music becomes dark and there's a musical sting and he stops smiling right 
That's you, great storytelling. Yep. It's schooling the audience. It's schooling the audience, right? It's totally. schooling the audience of what to feel about that moment. Yeah, yep. absolutely. And again, all without any words. Yep. You know. It's later. Uh, Mel sneaks up on one of the crossbow guys who goes for his gun. And Mel, being very quick, steps on his hand. Mm. And Mel goes up. He doesn't go up with a gun. He, do, he goes up with the bolt cutters that he's planning on right. using. So, again, right. it's just like, just you know, you, it's so utilitarian. You know, and he like, has a plan. He knows what he wants to do. Yep. Absolutely. And basically makes a deal with this guy who has been shot to the side of the car. Yeah, he's been crossbow bolted to yep. the side yeah. of the car. That, you know, I get all the gas I want if I take you back. And he goes, yes. Right. And I love when he cuts him I'm off. I'm just here for the gasoline. <laughs> gasoline. As he drives in, we get our first glimpse of the feral boy. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> Emil Minty. Who has a boomerang. He's awesome. Yeah. He's so great. One thing to think about, too, here in this moment is this is survival, right? Your instinct is stop the rape, stop the attack, stop the assault. But in this world, you cannot operate necessarily in that point of view. The longer game is what he's playing here. Is it selfish initially? Yes, but then eventually he takes part in this thing. But him waiting until they were done, till the guy, these guys were, God knows how many times they had their way with this poor woman. That he waited till they were done and then sneaks around when they have their guards down, when they're exhausted from the sex or whatever. So he has the advantage in that way. But I get the sense when you watch it too, I think it actually happens like there's not a lot of time I think that passes mm. in terms of like the distance that they are. That's what I mean. It's a yeah, while. Yeah, there's probably no way that, no, that they could have got down there and stopped, stopped the attack in time. Like the distance is so far. And then they're actually, you know, first... Mm. Uh, gyro captain's reaction is when they kill the woman, you know, because yeah. the guys attack her. I think it's when they rape the woman. Yeah, the rape. The woman. No, he has two reactions. The oh. first, there's first a reaction to the fact that right, he's looking, looking, and then it's like, oh my god. But then there's a, there's the eye pop, right, where where they kill where her. they kill her. Yeah, I you think know? you're right. Then he does the thing where he's looking through the telescope and his the one eye is closed, and then there's that brilliant bit of story p- telling with a musical sting of when. When they shoot her, you know, and they set up, we see that they're about to shoot her in through the POV of Gyro Captain. Then we cut the Gyro Captain's face, and then the musical sting, and then his other eye pops open, and that's our reaction to know something terrible has happened. Yeah. Here's the, but here's the thing, and I totally agree with you, and I think it's such a good point, yeah. is that the emotional reaction to the horrible things that are happening to this woman are from the Gyro Captain. Right. They're not from Mel. There's no reaction from Mel. Right. And we can assume that he has no... It's not that he has a heroic instinct to save her, but logically goes, I'm too far away, there's nothing I can do. It's that he doesn't have... We see no heroic instinct to save her. This is the standard of Mad Max. He's the reluctant hero in every film he's in, which is kind of correlative to a lot of the martial arts movies and where they're... I don't want any trouble. I don't want any trouble. His, His is more like, I don't care. Like, I want to move forward, but he finds himself, because he does have a good heart at the bottom of everything, he finds himself drawn to these situations where he has to try to save these people. And well, he's such, a, he's such an inscrutable, for lack of a better word, character. Mm-hmm. He has such an ambiguous nature in yeah. terms of his moral code. Because well, he's, he's the archetype of the fallen hero, right? You know, he, right. he was a cop, right. you know, he was a good, unquestionably a good guy. He had a wife, he had a kid, and the wife and kid were killed. And and so then he lost his humanity, and so now right he doesn't care. Yeah, this excuse me, this movie is about him 
regaining his humanity and regaining caring about people. And then interestingly enough, that's the exact same arc of, of Beyond Thunderdome, and it's the exact mm-hmm. same arc of Fury Road. Right. That's the, that's the thing. I mean, He's the reluctant hero. I right. think the comparison, like to me, like the, the comparison that hits me the most is Yojimbo. Mm-hmm. He's just yeah. this per- person whose motivations are sort of, yeah, yeah. what is this guy here for? Fistful of dollars. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's the same, it's the same archetype. You know? Watched that again yesterday. I hadn't seen it in a while. I haven't seen it in a decade, God, at least. that movie. It's so good. Fucking love it. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. <laughs> um. Uh, and so, and then we cut to him. He's driven up to the compound. Top ten reluctant heroes. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, get, he 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 gets out of the car. He's got the guy on his shoulder. And the first question is, are they going to let him in? Another great set. Another great subjective sound thing. You know, because we see we establish the feral kid first, so we get some close ups of the feral kid, and then Max holding the guy. And then we're, when we're first hearing Papagala, we're hearing. Take it real easy. As far as you go, you know we're hearing right. it from like as if you were, and then when we cut in closer on Papagallo, then we can hear we can hear him loud. But so we've met our bad guys. And I should have said our bad guys are all in leather. Yeah, they're all mohawks. Mighty Wes has you know buttless chaps. Which I was talking to our friend Dave Rapp, and he said, "Well, all chaps technically are buttless, true, or uh, assless." Um, uh, he has no underpants. He has no pants below the chap. That's like usually the, that's the that's the salient point. Right. Um, and that where this came from was the costume designer just raided all the S and M stores in Sydney because yeah. <laughs> apparently her apartment was really close to one or something like that. So she um, derived a lot. Again, of... This is totally groundbreaking in terms of yeah. costume design. I mean, none of these things had been seen on film. There's especially see. There's a couple shots. A couple of the ba- got like lesser bad guys. Are Frank Miller's designs of of the mutants exactly? Oh, sure. You know, like in Dark Knight Returns, like a whole bunch of the you know the gang called the mutants. Their costume designs are right out of this movie. Sure. And now we're going to meet the good guys. Bad guys are dressed in black. The good guys are all dressed in shades of white, and yeah. they are wearing uh, f- American football shoulder pads, and <laughs> which the bad guys are too. But theirs are just spray painted black. They're just spray painted black, like the Raiders. Yeah. I mean, the, the... But, and Max, his costume is like the bad guys. It's not like the good guys. That's a great point. Leather. 
Um, and they let him into the compound, and there we see sort of our first uh, glimpses. There's Papagallo, who is the uh, leader. He's played by Mike Preston. Mm-hmm. We see the mechanic, who's this parallels guy, paralyzed guy who's always hung by straps and swings well, floating right, around. They didn't have a wheelchair, so again, it's like, well, yeah. how would we get him around? And it's in this little mini crane, basically. He becomes one of my favorite characters. Yep. He's great. We got the yeah. mechanic's assistant, probably my favorite character. <laughs> uh, it's going to take a little time. <laughs> 24 hours um, uh, okay big 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 rebecca is the is the older lady you know you know the what's the warrior lady? No, the warrior woman is called warrior okay woman, played by virginia she, hay who was on that show farscape she was oh. the blue the lady all in blue on farscape because she's with the mechanic guy they're together that's an uh, like the partners? Seems i don't to be, know they seem to have a part, seems to a be, relationship could, be, could yeah. be well there's certainly sadness later on between connection there, between the two yeah. there's the the slightly balding will never walk away guy who yeah yeah who um because remember when i did those daily drawings a couple of years ago i did i did designs of all of these characters yeah. just for fun but, but and then there, the curmudgeon is the name of the old guy you know this humongous seems like a reasonable man yeah. you know, <laughs> i can talk to him who's the cheerleader Who's the eighteen-year-old? Oh, the one that looks like, well, and I, that's right out of that's right out of Olivia. Yeah, John, let's get physical. I, I was so that was the one costume. I'm like, this does not fit. Right, well, I get it. I believe it her name. Fit. Her name is just Gyro Captain's girl or something like that. <laughs> that there, there's, I feel, anytime you do future movies, there's almost it's almost inescapable. You get some hints of the exact time yeah. when something is done. In the same way that you know, like that, Luke and Han both have just completely fashionable 70s hairstyles yeah, true, in, true. in New Hope. And and right, she's the biggest hint of the day that they that yeah. they like, let's give her that straight up on top knot and the pink headband, which is hands a little bit too much like Olivia Newton-John. And then one of the first questions he's getting as he comes in is, what happened to the girl? Right. And this is from that guy who's the balder guy. Yeah. And the never walk away guy. And he says, you know, she, she's dead. And, you know, how did it happen? And... I think in his one bit of kind of kindness, he yeah. said... It was quick. It was quick. And yeah. I think it was... I mean, she obviously suffered horribly before, but the, her death was right. quick. Yeah. Um, and But all Max wants is some gas, because he made a deal. Look, I just want my gas. I want to get out of here. Unfortunately, the dude he made a deal with is dead. Yep. And at this point, busting a deal does not mean facing a wheel. That will be three years <laughs> later. Yes. <laughs> um, if you had a deal, you'd die with him. I haven't seen that movie in... A really long. Time. I still love that film, but we should just talk about this one for now. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll say this though. I actually think pound for pound, this is maybe another thing to be discussed. I think the Mad Max quadrilogy, as franchises go, say so you can't count the Marvel film franchise because that's mm, twenty two right, films. Right, right. Pound for pound is the highest quality franchise of anything. Like if you think about Alien, you think about Star Wars, you think about whatever. The quality of the four Max films, if you're going to say Thunderdome's the weakest, it's still a pretty damn good movie. And when you think about how good Fury Road and Road Warrior are, Mm. and then Mad Max is pretty solid, that's maybe a whole other... That's a top ten thing of... Ah, uh, There are only ten. But of of, of like... Fighting over what actually the franchises top are. ten franchises is not a bad top, top ten franchises definitely, but yeah. top ten quadrology. Oh, no, not, not quadrology. Yeah. You know, yeah. But, but so, say like say you like oh I love Alien, I love Aliens. Uh, oh, so you know, like what, the drop off. You know? I know we're in a digression, but it, yeah. one that had come up on this show that I still think is super strong is the Rocky movies and Creed movies. Mm-hmm. Is an incredibly high list, but someone po- I think it was Vogel posted yep. today that the Toy Story movies might be the top of all time. And quadrology. you know what? I think, all right, that's fair. I think they are. Yeah. 
But if we're going to say live action, then I guess that's my only... Yeah, I think that's a good argument to make, actually. But, and certainly I would argue they are unquestionably my favorite. You know, this yeah. the Mad Max franchise is my favorite. Franchise. The only thing that stops Thunderdome is the kid stuff. The kid stuff gets a bit annoying. Other than that, I enjoy yeah. it. Bartertown's a fucking awesome place to it's create. It's great. Yeah. They start to paying attention to the car. Once again, we hear that it's booby-trapped. Wait, John, who runs Bartertown? <sighs> Tina Turner. <laughs> Master Blaster. <laughs> Um, He's a raggedy man. <laughs> um, oh, well, not, uh, Tina Turner's another. I mean, when you think about Warrior Woman, Max's wife, Warrior Woman, Tina Turner, it's all just a direct path to Furiosa, sure. you know? As they start talking about his car, what does the mechanic have in his hand? Booby trap. Yeah. That didn't stop him at all. And just as we're. Oh, and the dog goes from and starts biting his leg. Last of the V8 interceptors. A piece of history. Would have been a shame to blow it up. Um,. And here come the bad guys. And we close the gates and people jump up to man the flamethrowers and the the big crossbows and the feral kid jumps down a hole. And what do they do with Max? They handcuff him up to a wall. Yeah. I like the feral kids flip into the hole. It's always great. So good. It's It's scary. That kid, they have him do so much stuff that you would never let a kid do today. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It is so dangerous. Yeah. It's Australia, man. They're tougher down there. <laughs> it's true. It's probably true. Um, so well cast, that kid. His face oh, yeah. is amazing. And his acting is amazing. At the, I mean, point, at the point when he, he growls at the gyro captain, it sounds like an animal. Yeah. Like, um, and now we see that strapped to the front of the humongous cars are two guys from the compound. Oh. And this is a great example of what you were saying before of the subjective sound because we see the guy screaming. Yeah. And you could almost hear him, but you can't really hear him. Mm-hmm. And it makes it more scary. And of course, we see the mighty Wes. And who does he see? He sees Max. Yeah. There is a spiritual psychic connection between these two that we're going to see many points in the film. Yo. Um, and out comes uh, a character named Toady. Mm-hmm. And the Toady makes an announcement. Greetings from the Humongous, the Lord Humongous, the warrior of the wasteland, the Ayatula of Rock and Roller. There's always a nerd. There's always a nerd in that group. God bless him. Gotta have him. I love the little, sp- the, the actor who plays with Toadie is so great. I also love that he had, you know, he's got like the one sunglass eye patch, mm. you know, like <laughs> as his costume thing, but. And then what's so great is I love like he's he regularly announces the the humongous, but you get the sense that he's just come up with the Ayatollah of rock and roll because yeah, yeah, yeah. he's saying is all of his thing. And then he kind of looks around, like looks back at like, I wonder what they're going to think of this one. The Ayatollah of rock and roller. What, what year is uh, Escape from New York? 81. 81. Because the Escape from New York is you are the Duke, the king of New York. You're <laughs> a number one. one. Yeah. Um, always reminds me of that. And now we get to hear uh, the voice of the humongous, which is Kjell Nielsen, who is a Swedish bodybuilder. Yeah, he was Mr. Sweden. Um, and he's huge. And at first they weren't going to use his voice. And then they actually Well, it's totally great, too, because it ends voice. up feeling like it's an Arnold kind of yeah, oh, totally. like teasing or whatever. But then it's just this happy accident that they get this Northern European you know, bodybuilder. who. Ha- so it's... Because it, it's his own thing, because it's not exactly Arnold, but it feels a little bit like it's an Arnold ripoff. Yeah. And the fact that he's like, has Arnold's body with Jason the serial killer from yeah. Friday the 13th mask, basically. I am gravely disappointed. 
Again you have made me unleash my jokes of war. Look at what remains of your gallant scouts. Well, and his voice is kind of garbled, which works with his strange mutant head that is pulsing in some... George yeah. Miller must love comic books because there's one line in there too of like, What a puny plan. <laughs> no, like... <laughs> Like, Very that's such so. a Hulk line. Yeah. You know, like, only the Hulk calls things puny, you know? Well, and he wants to make a deal. And the deal is, you know, he, he, he he's like, I don't want any more violence. Right. You know, just walk away. Just walk away. This humongous seems like a reasonable man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. um, Wes kills a bunny. Oh, well, I mean, it's just, I think the never walk away guy was apparently this very conscientious, uh, sensitive in the best way actor. And when he read the script, he's like, I'd love to be in it, but you can't, you, you can't kill that bunny, you know? And like, look, we weren't gonna, but look, we assure you, we will not actually shoot a bunny. But then they had to go to quite a, an elaborate amount of stuff to come up with a rig so that they didn't hurt the bunny in any way. <laughs> and uh, that was the only way the guy would do the movie. The, uh, the, the feral kid throws his boomerang. Everyone watches it. He catches it with his giant gloved gauntleted hand, throws it again kills the golden youth youth on the back that is uh wes's friend Mm -hmm. and this is the moment we talked about before that's sad and wes throws it back it goes over the kid's head and tody goes i got it (laughs) i got it it. it. (laughs) fingers get hysterical i so remember this in the theater and it's so shocking and then what happens is that they all laugh at him laugh at him and then he laughs too. That is so. There's so much fucked up toadiness in that. So sad. It's a cult thing to oh, be yeah. part of it. It's true. He's such a nerd. It probably was never cool to be part of it to be accepted. And then when that moment happens, is a moment where he could actually express personal pain. But they laugh at him, and for him to stay part of the group, he has to laugh along at his own pain. Well, the role right, of the it's a very It's a very high school, like yes. the worst part of high school moment. Well, the role of the toady, I mean, his personal safety is tenuous at best. At best. Yeah. As long as you have to maintain your toadiness. Yeah. The moment that you go, hey, that hurt. Stop being mean to me. You're done. I'm sure he's been raped a few times by these oh, guys Jesus. on a casual Tuesday. I'm sure. On casual Tuesday. <laughs> Just because they feel I like it, I'm getting sure. raped on casual Tuesday. <laughs> and Wes at this point has gone pretty crazy. Oh, yeah. He wants to attack. Um, oh. and the humongous hug chokes him out yeah. <laughs> with his throbbing veins on the back of his head. Another top-down shot. Still, my dog of war. I understand you, pain. We all are someone we love, but we do it my way. Like a dog, like a dog. Right? He has to yank the leash. I mean, well, he—that's how he no, treats it. Yeah. No more talk. <laughs> um, no. And he says, "You know, I'm going to give you a day." We don't have to die, says Big Rebecca. She's the leader of the we should just give up. Um, and, of course, we have the never walk away guy who is not given up at all. No. Um, because, well, we definitely get the impression that the woman that was killed. Was, that we, yes. was his wife. Was, yeah, or was connected. They were connected, you know. Yeah. And as the bad guys all drive away, out comes the feral boy and grabs that boomerang. And it's a great shot. I don't know why I like it so much. But just that he, you know, we're, we think this is a shot about the cars driving away. And he sneaks out into the foreground, grabs it, and disappears. Yeah. And now we have the the old army guy uh, with the. He sounds reasonable. 
<laughs> um, and we get into a big argument. About and he's whatever. wearing what I love is he's actually just wearing a sport coat. Yeah. And then he's found some some medals or yeah, and some of the medals are medals, and some are just like bullshit kind of pins and coupons. But he's just sort of made it, and he's got a samurai sword, which yeah. I love too, in an actual you know American World War II helmet. You know? Right, it's strange. Um, and uh, Papagallo is talking to them about what would happen if they would walk away. Remember one thing that is more than just a tanker of gas. That is our lifeline to a, to a place beyond that vermin on machines. What's great, too, is as he's making this speech, which is ostensibly an important story point, in the middle of it, we cut to, you know, Max interacting with the feral kid and stuff. And we don't yeah. hear all of Papagallo's speech because once we cut in on those guys, then we just hear it as this, that's why we should not walk away. Yeah. Walking away is bad. You know, because now we're focusing on this other story element that's more important ultimately. Right, which is... Which Max's is, humanity. And he gives him the little music Hurdy gurdy. And that's the second semi-smile that we get from Max in the whole movie. Um, Collect all smiles. Collect and, them all. But the big thing is, is that even if they didn't want to walk away, they still haven't found a vehicle that can haul all the gas. And who pops in at that moment? Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Later on, we're having a meeting, and he kind of lays out, like, my offer is, I'll get the rig, you give me all the gas I want. And Okay. That is an amazing shot when they're in that, when they're in the the tent that night going over the plan. A, like Papagallo is surrounded by all of his group, so they the shot they get is that they're it's you definitely get they're the sense together, that yeah. it's a democracy, even though Papagallo is a leader, like their group. And then when we cut to Mel's reverse, it's just him, and he's almost a silhouette, mm-hmm. like his whole body and his neck is all black. And there's just this little sliver of light that's just kind of covering his face. It's an amazing shot. And it's shot as a lot of these shots are at Magic Hour. Yes. You know, so you get that beautiful sunset. Um, it's amazing that they have so many shots at that time because it takes such planning and such speed to get those shots. And they make a deal. And out goes Max with some gas and a couple of tanks on this stick on his shoulders. Another amazing detail is the Never Walk Away guy oils his knee as they're discussing oh, like going that. out yeah. like it doesn't get its own close-up it do, it's like max and the guys are discussing the plan but w- there's just that great detail of like oh that little knee thing of yours is a little squeaky let's and and hey we have an abundance of oil and gasoline yeah. here so let, let's just eek, 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 that eek, is a eek. great little detail and he's outside and while he's outside he makes a little bit of noise and almost gets heard by one of the bad guys because right, he drops the t- the the things he's holding and what saves him little kid little kid does beautiful howls i love his performance there's such an attitude that he has mm. as he gives those last couple of yips or whatever yeah. um and max gives him a little nod it's the morning and he's back up on his hill and sun again we're at magic hour sunrise it's backlit it's beautiful and then we cut to feet again of the maybe he just likes the gyro captain's feet well it's such a great way to because he even starts on the feet when he first establishes wes and uh the golden youth when he's going to pull out the thing we we pan up the guys on the bike you know we start at the feet when we pan up to them and stuff but this is another thing about not just not just interesting with what we're seeing between a few characters geography but this establishes, I bet that if we looked at a map of all the events that happen in Road Warrior, I bet George Miller could draw where everything is. Because, And this is why right after 
Mel Max has the scene where he escapes Wes and he first sees the tanker. It's why we see the gyro captain right after. Because now Max, to get to the tanker, he has to go through where the gyro captain's copter is. Right. You know, right. like it's they're literally it, like it's literally like a path. You know, and the gyro captain is trying to work his way back to the copter too. Yep. You know? And of course, he catches up to him. Oh, and he's dragging a log behind him. I should have said that. Yeah. Um, and the captain hears barking and looks back. There's the dog, and there's Max, and there's another little almost smile. And now, when we see the three of them approaching. Who's carrying the heavy lifting yep. now? Now the gyro captain has this stuff. <laughs> Who's mumbling about? Remember lingerie? <laughs> yeah, lo- yeah, lingerie. Um, lingerie. And what do they find when they get back to the copter? Dead dude, because the snake worked. Yeah. <laughs> There's a little argument about who gets to eat the snake. Frickazee. And of course, while while they're arguing about the snake, Max sits down and starts uh, searching the body. And one of the things he finds is. A couple of uh, shotgun shells, which he quickly loads in his empty shotgun, which the gyro captain sees. And this is where we had John quoted my favorite, one of my favorite lines in there, where it's like, when we discover that that it's not loaded, it's like, that's dishonest. Wow. That's what that is. Wow. (laughs) How do we know that one's not a dud? Find out. Cool, cool, cool. And now we're flying, and we find that big truck, and Max is working on it, and he gets it started, and the gyro captain does a very funny kind of dance. Matt Garcia's favorite line. We're partners! <laughs> partners! Um, and he's ready to go, and the captain goes, what about me? You're not going to leave me here. And he does throw him the keys. Yeah. So at least he lets him out at that point, and he drives away, and we're... Now we kind of have a driving sequence and he checks his gun and there's a great, and these are these shots that George Miller does that I just love, which is that push in across the hood of the truck to max driving. It looks so cool. Um, And of course the copter is following him. Um, And now we see our bad guys. Yeah. And Wes, (laughs) Wes is doing some grooming. Yep. And the moment Max is near, he perks up. You're right. His spider sense tingling. His spider sense are tingling. And all the bad guys start jumping in their cars and getting ready to go after him. By the way, one thing. So I said it was we're in a kind of a miners area and they needed extras. And so a bunch of the miners come out to be extras and they get all done up in their mohawks. And they didn't like it. <laughs> they were embarrassed. They would wear like hats and stuff because ah. mohawks was not a cool thing when you were a miner in the middle of nowhere yes. in Australia. And then by the end of the shoot, they kind of liked him and they really liked him and they started showing them off. And then when it became a big hit, they really liked it. (laughs) And now they were very happy to have film crews come back in. And of course, uh, today, all those mines have shut down. Yeah. So they need the industry. Yep. There's a great shot there with Humongous when Max is coming back through town when, you know, I just love the calmness of he walks over. He's like, oh. I need to get out the special weapon, you know, yeah. and I love he d- the slow methodical thing. And then the great storytelling of he's got that. I don't know. Maybe it's a 357 Magnum. Yeah. That we need Big to be in here for the gun. It's yeah. a giant gun. I think it's got a scope on it, too. Yeah. And you can see he's just down to his last four or five bullets, yeah. you know, so it's like, all right, this is a special occasion trying to get time to get Bessie, you know, or whatever. And then he puts a couple, you know, uh, he puts a couple right in the engine block, yeah. you know, yeah. like. There's a great shot, too, where Wes runs and jumps on a motorcycle. These are some great stunt work. I mean, obviously, we are going to see throughout his career, this guy is a master of stunts. Yeah. Um, 
there, there's another shot where there's a guy who's under a car working on it. Yep. That car gets hit. He gets crushed. Um, one of the great, there's about four or five really great dummy shots in the movie. And yeah. that's one where it's a dummy and we probably can kind of tell it's a dummy, but it's still a good dummy and it's a good shot. It's still know? scary. Um, and Wes shoots out one of the tires and jumps on the back of the rig and we see the top down view. One of the great things about having that gyrocopter is we have the yeah. gyrocopter shots. Again, there's a lot. Yeah. There's always a logic to these shots, you know? Um, um, and Mel does this big turn with the guys coming up behind him mm. and Mel fires his weapon. It is a dud. <laughs> Wes smashes through the window and grabs Max um, and there's this, one of the other weapons that we see is these big, like multi-barreled sh- pneumatic shotgun, Yeah, that's whatever right. they are. Yeah. Uh, they get the tires. Yeah. He shoots out some tires, but the gyro guy flies over him and drops the snake on him. Yeah. He freaks out, panics, shoots the guy driving his own car. <laughs> yeah. They crash. Um, and that's a big stunt too. Yeah. And now we finally make it into the compound, but two other cars get in the compound along with the mighty Wes. Wes! Before they get the gate closed, yeah. Before they get the gate closed. Then that pink car comes up and they f- destroy it with the flamethrower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mighty Wes inside the compound is my favorite sequence. Oh, it. yeah. Climbs up on like the gantry walkway, whatever. Does that cool twisting flip over somebody. Max jumps, runs up onto the top of the, the rig, climbs up to uh, one of the flamethrowers, which he starts using. Because Papagallo gets, he's flamethrowing and he gets injured. Yeah. That's right. He know. gets shot with a shotgun bolt in the leg. Or crossbow bolt. Right. Crossbow bolt. And I love the moment of, of Wes is finally getting out of the compound because he swings down on this, I don't know, a pole with a torch pole. on top of whatever the hell it is. Pole pole. It lands when he hits the ground. He, there's a hiss that he makes. It's just awesome. <sighs> what a great character. Doesn't he say that? Yo. Is this what he but says? Yeah, that's when he says, yeah. Yo, you can run, but you, you can't can hide. Which pretty much no one had ever said up until Yo. that point. Yeah. You know, like it's like it's like hearing lines from Casablanca where now they sound <laughs> cliche, but they yeah. didn't sound cliche then. And that's like that's a line where it's like, all right, that was not a cliche when he said that. Nope. Um after the gyrocopter has landed in the compound. And, uh, just talking about feeding it, that's an amazing guy. When he does the pole vault thing. The collection of shots that they do yeah. that they do to sell it. There's an amazing stunt, but then the landing is just feet. Yeah. You know, where it's probably just a three foot drop with feet, but you get all the sense that he's just taken right. this big and foreground. Then he runs in, and I think he stays in focus. For in focus in the foreground, runs to the background, and then I think then we pan up to and then cut in on the close of. That's great. Um, it's after uh, the gyrocopter has landed in the compound and that feral kid is already kind of touching one of the propellers. And this is where you get the, like, leave that alone. He doesn't leave. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That growl is awesome. It's so good. Um, And the older guy is kind of going, can that gyrocopter take Take two? two? Yeah. And he looks over at the blonde and says, possibly. Yeah, that's a great cut. A very good cut. Um. And now we hear the uh, Papagallo saying we're going to move out tonight um, and kind of give some orders out. And now we get the moment, which this is, is such I mean, yeah, probably one of the most quoted things in the movie besides, you know, two days ago or whatever of just the great game of human telephone that they play between oh, you know, God, Papagallo, yeah. his assistant Zeta, and then, yeah. you know, the, the mechanic and the mechanics assistant. The rig! How is she? Got a cracked timing case cover and it's broken a couple of teeth off the timing gears. Got a cracked timing case cover, it's broken a couple of teeth off the timing gear. Yeah, the radiator's damaged at the core. The radiator's damaged at the core. Got a cracked water pump. It's got a cracked water pump. And a fractured injector line. It's got a fractured injector line. Well, what does all that mean? Yeah, okay, but what does that mean? 
What does that mean? 24 hours. 24 hours? They've got 12. You've got 12. Okay. Like that guy, he can't, I don't know. I got, I wish I knew more about that guy. What planet is that for? I mean, well, and this is a thing that was, the actors came up with this. This was right. their idea. <laughs> um, and it's so, it's so it's funny. It's so kind of out of the movie. But you need it. This is the comic relief. Like, yeah. this is the... Oh, yeah, it's bored. You got 12. Okay. Okay! <laughs> you know, just... That guy's so good. So good. <clears throat> um, and now people are coming up to Max and saying, oh, I'm sorry, we got you wrong. And right. so Even great... warrior that, woman, yeah. 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 So great that you're going to drive the rig. He's not going to drive the rig. Now no. that you've done everything for us. And there's that great shot of, you know, keep his vehicle at least. Like, Papagallo's kind of got that cloak on. Mm. You know, he just looks like a king... Well, and, and, and as this is going on, what do we see off in the distance is the bad guys are now right. crucifying no people. One, no one gets out of here alive. You know, like now, let's assume, do we think the humongous would have let them live if they'd let them walk away? Maybe. No. I don't know. I don't think so. But definitely at this point, no, he's like, look, yeah. you know, the veneer of civility is over. Everyone Now does. everyone is... No one gets out of here alive. And they're all preparing for going out. They're welding. They're building stuff. And the gyro captain and the blonde are sneaking away. Yep. But at the last minute, she doesn't want to go. Nope. Can't leave her family. And she goes back, and he goes back, too. And Max is kind of in the garage or whatever. He's siphoning the gas to fill his tanks because right. that was his deal. Don't have time for long speeches. Papa Gallo tries to convince him to stay. Got all I need here. You don't have a future. I could offer you that. Rebuild our lives. Max, buy a ticket for 2,000 miles. And the old guy tries to kind of convince him with the, some postcards of yeah, this yeah. fantasy of where they're going to go. <laughs> Nothing to do but breed. And then Papa Gallo comes at him. What are you looking for? Come on, Max, everyone's looking for something. You're happy out there, are you? Hey, wandering? One day blurring into another? You're a scavenger, Max. You're a maggot. You know that? You're living off the corpse of the old world. And he goes right to the bone. What burns you out, huh? Kill one man too many? See too many people die? Lose some family? After that, you lost some family. You make you something special, does it? Hey? And then that's when he's pushed that button where yeah. then Max's like, oh shit, I gotta get out of here. Well, and Max punches it. Yeah. yeah. Um,. And, and I like, too, what he says next is, like, we've all lost somebody. Yeah. You're not special that, yeah. at all. How does that make yeah. you special? Here's my question. So, Papagallo's goal is to get Max to drive the tanker. Does Papagallo already know that the tanker is a decoy? Yeah, I think he does. So, he is sentencing Max to death for nothing at this moment. No, I think, well, I think he it's an acceptable loss. He's not part of the community. He's not part of the tribe. That's what I think, too. He's a scavenger. Exactly. And he'll use him as a sacrifice to for the greater good. And look, he also... he I think he does think that Max has the greatest possible chance... Yes, of all of, his people. ...of, of yeah. getting away. Yes. But right, he doesn't want to risk anyone in the group, ideally. He he wants the group to... You know, the, the tribe to survive. Yeah. But... So I think he figures if Max gets away and then ma- makes him to the rendezvous, great. It's a win, you know, it's a win-win, but if he, mm-hmm. but certainly it also, it sells his deception. The, if, if arguably the best driver is driving the rig, then he knows that that the greatest chance that the bad guys will pursue the rig. What's so interesting to me though, is like our perception of that guy is he's a good guy. 
And he is certainly a good guy in the sense that he, if he, if Mel doesn't drive it, right. he's going to drive it. Right. So he's willing to sacrifice his own life. But before he sacrifices his own life, he kind of would rather that this other person did it. And yes, yes there is some possibility that Max could get away. Oh, I mean, I th- one could make an argument. I think we're on the right track, but... Mm-hmm. One could make an argument that Papagallo actually had intended to have Max drive the tanker with the gas in it because he knew Max was such a good driver, thinking that was the greatest chance. And when Max fell through, then that's when he switched to the decoy plane. Right, right. I, I'm not saying that that, you know, I'm awesome. not saying that is the case, but I think, you know, there's an argument there. It'd be interesting to talk to the actor and George Miller because I know that they... You know, Miller has backstories for all of these yeah. characters, you know, and, and the actors did too, I'm sure. But Max is not going to drive the tanker, and he is kind of yeah. dealing with the booby trap, and then we hear that music coming from the car, and I love this shot. He opens up the door, <laughs> and the kid is on the door. Yep. yep. Which I don't even quite know how that how they works. they that, yeah. But it looks great, and he Max grabs the music box, and he tosses it away to get rid of the kid. Yep. Um, and there's a sad kid there yeah, because he wants to go with him. Yeah. Um, and we have another wipe and Max pulls out in the car and everyone's kind of like, you're letting him go. We should keep the car. And that's when uh, Papagallo says he's an honorable man. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if Max is an honorable man. He has a code of honor, I guess. He definitely has a code. Yeah. I mean, they open up the gate and the gyro captain's like, they've got you wrong. You're not a coward. Stupid baby, but not a coward. <laughs> and then I love that he says you're splitting a great team. You and me together think of the possibility. See you around, maybe. Goodbye. Good luck. <laughs> Does Max at any time think of himself as a team? Huh? No, I don't think so. And of course, what happens the moment that Max is back out? The camera pushes in on Wes and he opens up his eyes. Yep. I'm telling you, psychic connection between the two. People jump in their cars, they drive away. The camera's really sped up. I think it's 12 frames a second at yeah. that point. Super sped up. And what's so weird to me about this sequence is it is over instantly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like, you expect we're going to have a big thing, but right. it, it's not. Which is smart because we just had a big thing with the truck. Yeah. So doing something small with when, a smaller vehicle makes sense. Well, again, like quick, right? this, the leanness of this move is yeah. all about story. So in the same way that we don't have some sort of buffer between... Max's first introduction of Wes and the gyro captain because yeah. it's like well what what would that scene be about in terms of the story nothing it would just be like well are we really going to get right to the next point of the story well yes and this yeah. is the same thing it's not about now Max gives this great escape it, this we need Max to be hurt that's yep. what the story is about yep. so let's just get to it and yeah mighty Wes slams a big exhaust pipe or something through the windshield the car flips over, wrecks that beautiful car that we all love, yeah. and uh, Max is wounded and injured, and they they go over to get him, and the the dog is there, and um, they they're looking for Max with a crossbow, and the toady, the tanks are full, mighty Wes, mm-hmm. and the toady is going there to to open up the tanks, and the guy with the crossbow sees Max's legs behind the rock, and who comes out behind the rock? The dog. Yeah. And then we see him aim, and there's a pause, and then he shoots that crossbow, and we hear that dog die. <laughs> Apparently, all sorts of people came after George Miller for killing the dog. Right. The- they all thought that he had actually killed it, that they thought they'd seen it on screen. Well, that's the great thing about it. Th- but the- what's so fascinating to me, nobody came after him about him killing the girl or killing all the other people that get oh, killed. No, exactly. Yeah. Can't kill a dog. How could you kill that dog? Yeah. Um, to be clear, he did not actually yes, kill a dog. Right. 
Um, and just as as that's happening, the toady has uh, opened up the gas cans, and we see that fuse going. And Max comes out with a gun, and then the toady sees the bomb, and it explodes. <laughs> um, and Wes looks down at this thing. It's all a wreck. And Mel does some incredibly good hurt acting. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, totally. The echoes of a, of a career of good hurt acting are given to us in yep. that little moment when he's against the rock, when he's trying to fish for the shotgun, and like his arm won't work, <laughs> and his face is all fucked up. He does some fantastic oh, yeah. acting there. I mean, you could look really bad trying to do, sell what he's doing. That one eye that's like half yeah. a I, was like, I mean, how I, just, we, I just love the lack of motor coordination thing. He sells that so good, true. you know. Um, having done Braveheart a month or so ago or two months ago, yep. I mean, the man suffers like nobody's business. Oh yeah, true. Between him and Harrison Ford, <laughs> Harrison Ford gets his ass kicked in every movie. That's true. It's true. It's a good yeah. point. We could have a pain off. Seriously. Top 10 suffering. <laughs> <laughs> There's only two. Um, um, and of course, back at the compound. Arnold. Oh, um, back at the compound, they see the smoke. Um, and we see Max dragging himself along. I love the dissolve effect that they're doing, which is they're just, I think they're just going forward and backwards a few frames in the shot, duplicating the shot probably with an optical and then dissolving between them mm. to create that blurry image. That's what I think is happening. It's a great, it's a great effect though. Mm. It looks great. And we hear the gyro and we dissolve to that shot. Max's POV of the blurred gyro coming I love in. That. I love that. And then shot of Max. Like barely alive. Not that helicopter what's happening. shot's amazing. Yeah, amazing because they fly over all the actual sets, yeah. all the stuff. You know, so we're we're seeing the shit that he's flying over in focus, and we're seeing Mel in focus too in the foreground. You know, and isn't it changing colors, or am I dreaming? Do I, do, do, I think it's just the light is changing. That's it. The yeah, light yeah. Light. Um, and it really is Mel Gibson lying on a plank outside a real helicopter. The DP is standing over oh, him shit. with yeah. a handheld shot. It was cold. By the way, it was cold. This is the all whole movie was shot in winter. winter. Yeah, poor Lord Humongous. Everybody, exactly. everybody's freezing. Oh, assless chaps, well, assless chaps. And Mel, I mean, he's just wearing like leather, but he's, he's not wearing anything really warm. I think there's a joke about thermometer bum. You know that when Jesus. when Mighty Wes's butt got too purple, that's when they knew they had to take a break and everybody <laughs> had to go inside. That's hilarious. Well, apparently there were times where Mel is. They had these you know big garbage cans filled with fire and everyone would huddle Mel standing around it literally shivering teeth chattering and then they'd say roll camera and he just stopped yeah and that's the acting man and then as soon as they say cut his he's, his teeth are chattering and he's you know uncontrollably shivering power of the mind yeah and on this thing with the helicopter it's also raining a little bit oh shit and george miller reached his hand out of the helicopter just once and said that the raindrops felt like needles they're hitting so hard and that's what Mel is, you know, it's the wind. The wind chill is huge, so that's what Mel's enduring when he's lying on that thing, being wounded. Acting is tough sometimes. Well, action movies, sure. Yeah, yeah. And we're back at the compound, and Mel is kind of waking up on the bed. I love that the kid is coming into the frame of the doorway upside down. Yeah, is great. And um, we hear outside that you know, again, our leader is kind of going over the plan, and he's gonna take the tanker out and try to draw the people out, which means we already have the plan that this is a decoy. Um, Just, yeah, spoiler alert in case any of you listening to us don't know. Yeah. The tanker's a decoy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Max struggles out, help, struggles out, helped by the kid. Um, 
and they're having a bit of there's some arguing going on about whether the paralyzed mechanic guy should go with the tanker truck and Mel interrupts it's all the same to you I'll drive that tanker no more time for deals no deals I want to drive the truck why does he decide he wants to drive the truck revenge how is it revenge because he knows they're all going to come after him and he knows he's going to draw them away and he's going to get a chance to kill some of these people in the process who heard him in this like five minutes ago is it for the dog revenge for this car no for, for him did to him well yeah what they did to him well he does say you know i mean he says you know i'm the best chance you've got so on some i mean so max is aware of his own awesomeness and skills yeah i mean like so so that's how he's trying to sell it to them and i do think he believes that you know but it's but it's interesting like what achieved his humanity now at this point is that why he's you know going and uh, making the choice or is he is it or is it still survivor driven of look if i'm left here you know like i'm i'm fucked i'm useless like this is a way i can still be useful but he doesn't know it's a decoy until the end no oh no i know i'm oh exactly so i think exactly. so i think what he's doing here is like he knows he's it's gonna still attract survival. the attention and he is going to serve yeah and he, he's the best chance they have but also he's gonna take out some of these motherfuckers before he goes down if he goes down my instinct has always been that it's more i'm angry yeah than I am altruistic. Yes. But it's a weird, it's not actually a, a carefully explainable moment. I agree. It could be a combo of both. Yeah. Um, and they're kind of like, look, you you can't drive a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, which I love. Papa Gallo. Papa Gallo is, he knows what he's doing. He's yeah. tricking Mel into doing it. He's tricking Max into doing it. Well, this is his best. I mean, at this him. point, like, this is, but but he still chooses to go with the tanker. So he's still willing to sacrifice himself. himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, yeah, he, he, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't go in the school. Yeah. You're right. He does. He's he's, he's uh, to protect the tank. And right. as we're going to get to, he's going to try to save the kid too. Yep. Yeah. You know, yeah. at the cost of his own life. Um. So he they agree. They give him some uh, his gun. They give him some ammo, and we get in our cars. I love Papagallo's car. That's a cool sort yeah. of. It looks like yeah. a cone shaped. Like yeah, because it looks. It almost looks. It looks simultaneously like a rocket. And like a shuttlecock. You know I mean? Yeah. And he puts on a weird hockey helmet or something. Yeah. Um, All found objects. And we yeah. see everybody else, you know, loading up into the school bus. And the gyro captain spins his propeller and we get a little eye contact between him and Max. And here come the bad guys with their prisoners still strapped to the front of Humongous's car. That's insane. And I love this shot, which is that I love the shot where we're on those prisoners strapped to the car and the camera tracks to Mighty Wes, who we see now has a chain around his neck, and it continues to go back to Mighty hum- to, to the humongous mm-hmm. holding that chain. That's hilarious. It's so good. Um, <laughs> He's little, literally let off the chain. Yep. You know, you little puppy. Um, and they want to take the feral kid with him uh, on the bus, but he gets away. Right. Uh, as the the tanker is coming out, humongous loads up his last four bullets. Um, and the kid gets away and runs and jumps on the truck. Yeah. And again, he, this is a little kid who runs and jumps on a moving tanker truck. <laughs> like, I can't believe that they did that. Um, and Humongous fires twice, and out comes the gyro captain dropping Molotov cocktails on people. And now we're into what is arguably one of the greatest car chase action sequences ever filmed. Certainly uh, among the most groundbreaking. Thoroughly yeah. agree. Totally. I, I mean, I think you put this with... 
uh, French Connection, you mm-hmm. know, like as one of those like, oh, this is going to change the nature of film. Yeah. And this is the thing about this movie is that which is that I th- so so I think Raiders came out in eighty one, right? Yep. And this is the next year. Is that or actually same year? Same year. Oh, because this came out in eighty one in Australia. Technically, yeah. Um, is that this is the moment of action movies, a movie where it's really action sequence to action sequence to action sequence. Yeah. And this one, even more than Raiders, because Raiders has way more dialogue and other plot stuff going on. Ostensibly, yeah. Th- this is like, you know, just having the thrill after thrill after thrill and culminating with this sequence is absolutely amazing. I love watching that truck just burst through those cars. You see the power of the weight of this vehicle. Yeah. Um, the shot selection is beautiful as they move from close up to POV shot to low angle shot to panning shot to up to the gyrocopter for those top down shots. Yeah. It's really, really beautifully done. And we have that shot high angle of the tanker truck driving away, followed by Humongous and all of these bad guys and motorcycles and all their cool cars coming after them. It's absolutely fantastic. And as we see them all go away, we cut back to the compound and our good guys going away in the school bus and all the other cars. Right. Um, and of course, what happens next? A bunch of bad guys run into that compound. Yeah. They're really happy. Right. <laughs> we we yeah, got it. We got it. And right then we see the fuse going and we realize the place has been, bom- you know, has been rigged to explode. Booby tripped. An amazing explosion. Yeah. Huge. Which I think they shot from like... That's the ones I think they had five cameras and they used them all and we see every angle on that explosion. Apparently they couldn't use they didn't even use movie guys to do this explosion. It's the Australian army. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, yeah, cuz they couldn't get the right kind of dynamite if it was but the army could give them the right kind of dynamite. They had to tell the air traffic controllers and all the planes in the area that they were doing this. And here's why you could tell it's a big explosion. If you look at it, there are those huge truck tires. That are, you know, they got to weigh 400, 500. I don't know how much right, those things right. weigh. Massive things. They're thrown like 80 feet in the air. <laughs> like that is a big, big, big explosion. Firebomb. Um, and, and from that explosion, we wipe to the chase. There's an aerial shot coming up behind the cars, up to the truck, all the way to the guys who we should I should have said are in these defenses built onto the tanker with yep. all these spikes coming out. They look like yep. medieval... You know, defense is where they have their crossbows. Yeah, it's a little uh, foxhole, basically, on the top of the... uh, Or it looks looks like the Iron Throne, almost. You know, (laughs) all those swords. And we have, which, you know, it's just amazing to watch, is guys jumping from car to car. And at this moment, what is it time for? Humongous lets the mighty Wes off Off the the chain. chain. (laughs) When he gets released, it's just awesome. And our uh, mechanic, who's the paralyzed mechanic, is throwing Molotov co- cocktails, which hits a car and bursts into flame, and that car crashes. Max looks out, notices the kid. Um, Wes throws a grappling hook from his car and rips the door off, which A, is cool and scary, and B, is great visually because yeah. it opens up the the image to get a better view of our hero. Right. And then uh, from behind, one of the cars pulls up, throws a grappling hook. Gets and the guy's leg. Catches the guy's leg. Zeta, I think. Um, and that holds onto the car and ends up flipping the car over. Mm. And a terrifying stunt. And this is, uh, in fact, George Miller says this is the scariest moment he's ever had working on a film. Which is that, so there's there's the main stunt driver is driving the car. And then there is a dummy in the car 
and the car is supposed to do this thing where it's hooked on with the grappling hook and then they're going to roll the car and the main stunt guy is going to jump out. I think this is my understanding. So he jumps clear before the car rolls and then the dummy in the car is supposed to break up. But as George is watching it, he thought the dummy flew out of the car and then he hears the camera operator or someone like that say, oh no. And in his brain, he goes, oh, that must have been the dummy, and that must be the stuntman rolling in the car, which he sees get essentially completely destroyed. And he was certain that he had just killed a stuntman. And in fact, the camera operator said, oh, no, because he felt his hat got blown by the wind and might have gone into the frame, which it didn't. <laughs> and it was the dummy. It wasn't the stuntman. And everyone was fine. But for a minute or so, he was terrified. I can't imagine that. Uh, unfortunately, as this happens, some fire gets on our mechanic's legs, and he is trying to put that out. <laughs> well, I th- the mechanic probably is the greatest. He and the gyro captain are the biggest sources of comedic yeah. relief. Oh, yeah. And so here it is. Right. This guy has burning gasoline on his hands, and they use it initially as just a comedic beat. Right. It's unfor- unless... But then, unfortunately, it leads to the demise of the warrior woman. Right, because she comes to help with two crossbows, takes out one guy, and then up comes them with that multiple, you know, dark gun thing and kills her. The fact that it's slow and they're smiling when they do it. And then she's stuck on the barbed wire and then she's still alive. It's a terrible death. And the mechanic gets some water and some bag to put out his fire. And And he tries to come help and then they both get sucked under the wheels. It's brutal. It's horrible. And when this is where I think maybe you're right, there's some relationship between the two. I always thought they had a romantic relationship. You know, it's it's definitely a very defensible position, I think. Um, Max rams another car and sends it off the road. And it's so funny when you think about it, really. That whole scene on the top of that tanker, it's like a castle battlement scene. Totally. But it's totally. just, but it's moving. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then there's this uh, moment where uh, a, one of the cars crashes into another car and a motorcycle crashes into that car. And the guy flips off the motorcycle. This stunt is, and that's a guy. That's not yeah, a dummy. it's not a dummy. It's a guy going, uh, you know, ass over tea kettle. Yeah. He does a couple flips in midair. And my understanding is he did, he actually had a pin in his leg. From a previous stunt. No, I didn't know this. All right, so he he had a pin in his leg from a previous stunt. And unfortunately, because of that whole tendency to want to shake everything to get stuff moving, they unfortunately shook it a little bit. So he was supposed to hit it in this certain way and clear it and kind of do what he did. Or I think I don't think he was supposed to go at ass over Tico. I think he was just supposed to, go, supposed to go hurtling through the air. But because of the movement of the thing, the object that he hit, his legs caught on the thing, and that's what made him go. And then the impact of hitting that on that speed with his legs when he crashed in all the boxes, he was essentially fine and his legs didn't break or anything, but the pin bent Ooh. like it just a crazy angle, like just from the, from the impact and stuff. So mm. they did have to take him to the hospital. Oh God. It's, I mean, it's a crazy cause that guy's, but if you flying. think about what he's doing, that's a, it's a really, it's a relatively minor injury compared to what it looks like. What it, it looks been. like. Yeah, totally. Um, and now things are starting to go wrong. Guys are shooting out the tires with crossbows. There is one guy who comes up and they're yelling, shoot out the tire. And he gets really close, gets a little too close. Yeah. yeah. Gets he dragged. gets sucked under it. That's the... another dummy. I, w- I wonder if that's just a little bit of like payback for us for the audience since we just saw two people that we like get sucked under tires. It's like, okay, look, l- we'll throw you a bone. One of the jerks gets sucked under the tires too. Um, gyro Captain continues to fly over this, giving us great top-down shots and he's throwing down more Molotov cocktails. Um, and... Max is reloading, um, and at that moment, Mighty Wes gets back on the back of the tanker, um, and more guys are climbing onto that tanker. Again, all of these are just live stunts, and of course, they're not going as fast as it looks like they're going, but they're still going fast. 
And uh, one of the bad guys comes in, sees the feral kid um, who runs towards Max to get under his protection. And I love that uh, Max grabs him and he's hanging out of the door and picks him up and just drops him on the seat next to him. Yeah, uh, like, and, like a cat by the scruff of his neck. Exactly. Um, and uh, Max has a guy above him, jumps in, shoots, a, shoots like a crossbow bolt down. Does he hit Max? I think he does. I think he does. Yeah. And then and then there's the bear claw guy too that really fucks up. Oh yeah. Max, yeah. You know. There's the thing onto him. And, yeah. And Max is about to shoot the guy above him, and then someone comes into the passenger side window, so he shoots him his head instead. Then gets the guy and butt him. There's the bear claw guy from behind. Yeah. And then we have the mighty Wes in slow motion leap down on the top of the thing. Mm-hmm. Then it's coming up. There's that great moment where then finally we're Ma- where we think all is lost for Max, and when he comes out, spins. You know, spins out, leans out of the side yeah. of a moving thing with a shotgun, fires. And that's when the kid goes, hey, 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 you know. It's so, there's so, this is why it was so hard for me to write out this down. There's so much happening with oh, this yeah. action. Yeah, sequence. it's crazy. It's so fast. The shot selection is amazing. The tension is super high. And now Mighty Wes is swinging down with some kind of like morning star or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just taking apart the cab. <laughs> um, amazing. And so what does Max do? He slams on the brakes, sending Mighty Wes off the front of the car. Right. So I guess he's gone. And somewhere in there, the gyro captain gets hit by that that horrible machine the, like that shoots mm. the four yeah, the crossbow top. boats. So he, yeah. so he goes down, and we get the sense that he crashes, but is yeah. not fatally hurt when he's crashed. It's actually, yeah, it all happens right about now, because right now uh, the Lord Humongous has hit his... Um, his turbo or whatever it is, his nitro, the nitrous, nitrous, yeah. and he goes forward, smashing his two prisoners into the back of the car, which is uh, mannequins with watermelons with wigs. That's <laughs> that. Um, and at that moment, and the kid is biting the arm of some guy that's right. hanging on the side of the thing, and that's when Papagallo pulls up. That's and right. there's this moment, of, and one of the things they do really well is we have a lot of driving music, and then the music cuts out. At various moments. Yeah. And the silences are really powerful. We're just hearing sound design. So good. And that's the moment where he's gesturing for the yeah. kid to come to him. And there's a great look of connection between Papagallo and Mel. And then what happens then? Gets killed by a trident. Yep. Trident in the back from the humongous. A man hurls a trident in another man. <laughs> Except for, I mean, uh, clearly this inspired. Uh... <laughs> Anchorman? <laughs> yes. That's what I was going to say. Thank you. Um, killed a guy that's just awesome and um it's the only other major trident before aquaman (laughs) (laughs) um and now another guy with one of those multi-gun crossbow things takes out more tires and we're in deep deep shit um the humongous is coming up but we still have the uh gyro captain who drops a molotov cocktail on him so he spins out on fire yeah. um and max now turns the whole rig around which yeah. is a great great shot of that u-turn oh mm-hmm. yeah and now there's still bad guys coming and the bullets oh, i should have said this earlier the bullets uh have ended up on the hood of the truck the right. sh- shotgun the shells. shotgun shells and so what does he say to the kid get the bullets get the bullet get the bullet because get the bullet. well yeah because Mel is still attached yep. to the dead bear claw guy, so he can't actually go out on the. He can, well, and he's got to drive. I yeah, mean, yeah, but, yeah. right, exactly. But he literally he's stuck. He cannot do anything but drive. He can't yeah. move in the cabin or anything, you know. And then, and then again, the music cuts out. And you just hear just, the wind. Yeah, you hear the wind. Completely silent. And, and is, the heartbeat. Yeah, and the heartbeat. Heart, we assume it's the kid's heartbeat. It is so scary. And again, I look at this and I go, "How did they do this?" 
I mean, some of it, I'm sure, is not moving in a moving it's car. It's not a kid on a moving car. Like, they, they, they definitely became expert on just doing the stuff where everything's shaking, everything's moving. And They're blowing wind. wind really powerful yeah, and yeah, stuff. Because yeah. it looks so scary, and he slowly goes out. He's almost gone to the bullets. And, you know, there are things in movies <laughs> where you go, having watched a lot of movies, I know that I know that's not, that guy's not gone. There's going to be another thing. I am certain when I first saw this movie, yes. I had totally forgotten. There's I, no thought that Mighty Wes is not dead. Right. And he pops up, and there's that double cut, and it is so scary. And just at the moment this happens, and 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 Mel pulls forward, rips out of that bear club thing, exactly. grabs the kid. The kid looks up sees that humongous has turned on his nitrous and is driving up them they come over the hill see him and then they slam straight into it incredible crash yeah and the car just shatters yeah it is amazing and that big tanker truck flips over on its side and slides through the dust and i should have said one thing before earlier on you see sand coming out of that tanker truck. Yep. Yeah. As it's, it's about getting shot. Yeah, as it's getting shot. Mm-hmm. And and when you first watch it, you just don't really notice. Right. It doesn't yeah. register. But then when you watch it multiple times, you're like, oh, there it is. Yeah. Because now as the And tank- it's that red, red sand too yeah. that you know, like mm-hmm. that they had out there in some of the scenes where it's like just a very distinctive color of exactly. sand, you know. And then as that tanker truck slides to the stop, that it's opening up and sand is just pouring out of that truck. Yeah. And we cut to Mel, you know. On the ground with the kid on top of him, struggling, sliding his way out of the wreckage, and he stands up and he turns around and he looks and sees that sand. What I love is they have they play Mel's reaction so slowly in case you're for all the people in the audience that are yep. still not getting it when you see it come out, and then he puts his hand into the yep. sand, you know, and then we come up and then and then we get Mel's biggest smile of the movie, you know, where it's like just him love him uh, that like basically irony is is his re-entrance into humanity again. You know, essentially where it's like he and he and Gyro Captain kind of share that look of like, oh, can you fucking believe this? Um, and what's so funny, there, there's a thing that comes up in my classes all the time where I'm asking a student like, no, how important is it for your audience to completely understand this thing? Yeah. And they'll just have a shot of it. And I'm like, you can't just have a shot of it. You have to have Mel walking up and putting his hand in it right. is what sells it. Yep, like right. you ha- you can't just show it. The sand pouring out is for all the smart people. Right. You know what I mean? Like, but but the whole journey to that is what the entire audience needs for everybody. Well, and it has emotional resonance, you know, as opposed to just mm-hmm. informational. Exactly. You know. Yeah, it's almost like an echo chamber, you know. Uh and then we hear our narration come back. And so began the journey north to safety, to our place in the sun. And we're not gonna have any more we're not going to sit with Max anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we're here that, yeah. The juice, the precious juice was hidden in the vehicles. Then we have this panning shot across the bus that kind of bounces along. I love that that, that is not a moving bus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a bouncy camera panning that makes it, and then wind blowing to make yeah. it appear as if they're moving. As for me, I grew to manhood. In the fullness of time, I became the leader, the chief of the great northern tribe. Who are we looking at as we hear that line? Yeah. yeah. That is our narrator. What does he say? What's his last line? And the road warrior. That was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now only in my memories. 
And that shot. And the same sh- the shot that we started the movie with. Yeah. It is golden hour. Apparently, they just, you know, they had the camera on. I, I, I'm sure it was a crane. And they went in and they went out and they went in and they went out mm. until one of them was magical. <laughs> and then that was the one. And that is the end of Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Yeah. Woo. It was a, for, for the budget of the film, it was a decent hit it's not a huge hit but it's definitely one of those movies that people rented and rented and Mm. watched on tv and watched over and over and over again and it is just i think one of the most influential films in the early 80s so oh well and i think it had a giant impact like every so often a film comes out too where even regardless of its box office it affects the entire film industry you know like and so i think totally you know mel was suddenly cast in everything throughout the rest of the like he became the in demand it was just a giant like this guy's a movie star like so for him it totally changed everything you know um it's funny i i i know this it's this strange category i bring up every once in a while but i might put this in the list of great movies that ruin hollywood because this is the beginning of the non-stop action film mm. you know you know the other movies that we put in this is or i've put in this are jaws and die hard um, and is that films that are so influential? You should put Raiders in there too, then. Yeah, Raiders definitely. Um, and we put Silence of the Lambs because that introduced the serial killer that we just go over and Star over Wars. and over. Star Wars is in the list, and th- and I think this idea Sounds is like a we top can ten list. He's trying to build our Jesus. <laughs> How many top 10? You know what we should have is the top 10, top 10 ideas that Steve Jones Steve came Jones up with in the with. course of this podcast. <laughs> um, I think this is so influential in the idea of nonstop action. Mm. Well, and again, what you would say about all of the things that ruined Hollywood is everyone just took the surface right. and didn't take the thing that makes it great in the first place, which is that this thing is pure story. It's yeah, right. just all story. Yep. Even though it's a story of nonstop action. But every single story beat is about something important yep. and the whole journey of the hero. But then people look at the outside and they just go, well, there's just got to be stuff blowing up and things happening the whole time. You know? Well, and the storytelling is so crystal clear. And the, the way that it's all put together is just so beautiful. Yeah, John, <laughs> tell me what your final thoughts are well, on The Road Warrior. I would say this. I was happy to revisit this film again uh, for the one millionth time for this show. Uh, and still find that it holds up and it's just as enjoyable. It's almost a combo of nostalgia and appreciation now with the film because it is a young Mel Gibson before all the bullshit. Yeah. It is a fantastic uh, sequel to a good beginning film in Mad Max for a series, but one that is nonstop and so much fun and with enough jokes and in, not laugh out loud jokes, more like kind of calming your stress down jokes that keep you dialed into everything. Because remember, we don't get much backstory on anybody no. in this film. Yet we are immediately drawn to them and connected to them as characters, even though we don't get the standard backstory with them and fallen through this journey. And at the end of the film, we have a different Mad Max. There is an arc here from where we started. And it's and you see it more and more, I think, as you get older. Because when you're younger, it's all about the action. When you're older, you're like, okay, what have I been here before? And what was my crazy uh, uh, drive with a tanker trucker through my own demons to get to the other side and remember who I am? And that's fantastic about the film. Not to get too deep, but that's what's so great about the film. And if you haven't watched it in a while, because sometimes you all listen to us without having watched the film or having, not having watched it in a long time, do yourself a massive, massive favor. Go back and watch it again. You'll be surprised about what you get out of it. 
Um, for me, the thing that's interesting to me is I watched it over and over and over again mm. after it came out and rented it all the time, and I had a videotape at one point. Um, is it watching it this time? What interested me the most was just the craftsmanship and the storytelling. Yeah, was that the it is so crystal clear in terms of everything that you're supposed to understand when you're supposed to understand it and even to the point of things being somewhat mysterious like when max and the gyro captain first get to that hill it's like no max is trying to figure out what's going on and we are trying to figure what's Mm. going on it is a really beautifully crafted film and i think in terms of how it is shot and how the action sequences are put together it is such an influential movie on on us today and so that's why i kind of go like this is a great movie for filmmakers to study in addition to being a really fun action movie with a great star uh and, and and just thrilling sequences what about you uh absolutely i mean Going off of some of the stuff you guys just said, like John talks about backstory, you know, and I think in all four of the films, something George Miller just does masterfully is that there's almost no time spent on any exposition, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and this is the only one, there's a slight exception because of, of Mad Max one being there where we have that little bit of setup, but all, none of the other films have that setup. We just start and it's because he builds such a logical world where everything about every character relates to the world that he's building that it just makes sense. You don't, it doesn't need to be explained, you know? So I think that's an amazing thing. I remember loving this movie so much as a, as a young guy, like, and just, and almost going like, you know, when you're young, especially when you're a young male, you're just like, Oh, almost thinking it would be cool if the world went this way or whatever. And I think the big difference about between being a young man and an older man is I feel like when you're a young guy, you're like, Oh, wouldn't the road warrior be cool. And be then, awesome. when, yeah. then when you're older, you're like, then you realize post apocalypse is the it's the road, yeah, not the road warrior. It's right. with Vigo yes. Oh yeah, that, you know, oh, it's oh like, God, yeah. And so as McCarthy, soon as I yeah. became a parent, I, I, it changed how I love this film. <laughs> and then especially as and now I spend every day just hoping, please let society not fall apart because I don't want to have to be Vigo Mortensen and that and that Australian kid just teaching him how to stay alive. You know, yeah. but, but it I think it's I think it's a masterpiece. I mean, in terms of it's so well crafted. George Miller is so goddamn good, and especially, right? I mean, it's the amazing thing of before Mel and all the crazy shit mm. that he's done and all the trouble he's had. It's just, it's always, you know, that would another be another fun top ten list. Like the the film, <laughs> the film that catapulted, you know, took a burgeoning star oh, and made that, that star. That's, good, you know that's a good. Like, that is a good one. Yeah. There's a there and there's you know every, top every, ten star making films. Yeah, exactly. Like June Bugs for Amy one. Adams yep. or something like that. You know, like there's one where it's like. Some actor emerges from that mm-hmm. thing, and it's like, holy crap, we gotta, we gotta watch this person. Yeah, yeah. but I, but I think, and it's, it's so great. Like you said, the nostalgist fact. I feel like when you think about Fury Road, yeah, when because when you think about, I love Spielberg and the stuff that he's done, or you think about Lucas come back with Star Wars, the fact that George Miller came back yeah. thirty five years later, and maybe made the best made the best of the four in a way and, oh, made, a, and made a film that's i mean some people have called one of the greatest action you know it mm-hmm. th- that's just it's ridiculously incredible and there's really no other example i mean maybe kubrick in his 70s you know well, or, right at an older age right yeah i i can't think of anyone yeah because you know I mean Kubrick with Eyes Wide Shut. There's still, I mean, everyone fantastic. There's some great stuff, but there's nothing like coming back with that kind of tour de force. Where that kind of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Spielberg doesn't do the kind of movies he did when he was young. Yep. You know, most filmmakers. Six years from now, please have me on for Fury Road. 
I, I, once you break your tenure, uh, you know, yeah. rule. No, we've already talked about. I can't wait to do that movie. Yeah, that movie is insane. That's like three. That's like three episodes. I think that movie is such a like fuck you to the young directors of like, <laughs> oh, you think you're directing an interesting movie? Check this out. Right. It is so insane what he does in that. Film. What I love about it, as we know, like. Everyone on the film didn't think Furio was going to be any good. I mean, Tom Hardy and Shirley's both apologized to George Miller in that in that Cannes Film Festival. Oh, really? um, and I ended up talking to some stuntmen that worked on that film, and they all thought that it was going to be crap too. Like, you know, this was like a year and a half before it came out. They're like, "Oh, mate, he's lost it. It's not going to be any good." Like everyone, <laughs> everyone thought that he'd gone crazy, but it turns out it's a well. Movie. Six years from now, it's a date. All right, thank you. Um, thank you guys for having me on. I love this movie. Thanks, oh, man. it was great to have you. So I think that's what we think of Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles, C-I-N-E. Don't forget the dash, F-I-L-E-S. You can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. That's the best place to do it. But if you really want to subscribe to us on YouTube, that's the best place for you to do it. Mm. Leave us some reviews on iTunes. Leave us comments on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Google Play and a whole bunch of other places. You could support the show and just like Wayne Edwards, get one of your picks done on the cinephiles at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. Um, as always, you could reach me on Twitter at SR Morris, on Instagram at SR Morris One. John, where can they reach you? You can find me with a gasoline at, at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And Mr. Jones, if people I'm, wanted to reach you. I'm Stephen B. Jones. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-B-J-O-N-E-S on Instagram. And uh, please come find me on Instagram or come listen to the three days of the contour. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a fantastic episode. We want to stay number one. Um, Steve, as always, it was great having you on the Thank show. You, Steve. Thank you guys for having me. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time on the cinephiles. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.